Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. Doing an NPR show. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> this is Ira Glass. What if Ira Glass came over? That'd be good. I'd, I'd want him to leave. I think I would, he would too. He would take over the conversation. He would. And he, he would just, just start asking us questions. And I'd be like, what the fuck are you doing? We're talking about movies. But why are you talking about movies? We'd, we'd ask him if he Now, if Terry drink. Gross came over, she'd be welcome. Well, she would drink with us. Yeah, and she would ask us questions that we would be interested to answer. Yeah. Absolutely. Speaking of questions, Don, did you see the uh, the fact that they, for some reason, posted the prologue to the new Jurassic World Dominion movie? I saw the news that they did that, but I didn't watch the thing. Imagine having so little faith in your sequel that you're like, here's the beginning of it, guys. I guess I'm just having a little problem with, with like what with they're trying to do with CGI. these Jurassic Park movies. Because didn't we get that thing a couple between... Yeah, it was that, right after short, the last that movie. movie. That, wasn't Andre Holland in that? I think so, yeah. Yeah. And I it mean, was, it, was, it was a Colin Trevorrow directed. And we reviewed piece. it. Yeah. It was like seven minutes long or whatever. We were just like, was, what is this? Just as mediocre as all the other Jurassic World stuff's been. But like, was there that much bad, like, will about Fallen Kingdom? I mean, I only watched bits and pieces it of it going shit like. shit ton of money. Man, I do not care about these movies. I loved Jurassic World. I thought it was, I thought it was fucking great. I, I mean, I don't. I thought, but it was one of those things where I just apparently wanted, like, to watch a dinosaur movie in theaters. You got it. And like when something awesome happened the with the dinosaur dinosaurs, I was like, yeah! "Good dinosaur wasn't good enough for you." Or that's probably later, actually. That was around the same time. No, good dinosaur was awful. No, I'm not thinking of good dinosaur. I'm thinking of dinosaur, the Disney movie. I hated that movie. I remember that movie. That was the Iguanodon movie, right? Yeah. Oh, that movie is so fucking bad. Did you watch episodes of the show Dinosaurs? I love dinosaurs, but I could not get my kids to watch it. A little try hard at times. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And not very funny. Yeah. It's because it was, but at the time it seemed so transgressive. Um, like there's just these angry dinosaurs like burping and farting and like not being nice to their kids. Remember when like, and this And being incredibly left wing in like <laughs> the early 90s. Yeah. And this is like Talking about climate change in 95. Oh, people, people couldn't even handle that shit. They didn't understand that climate was a thing. They could not even handle it. Well, that's like one of the things that we talk, we'll talk about with our movies this week is like the idea um, of. Both two, like, movies that take place in the same era, which I didn't even really think about until, like, right now. But it's interesting to think the things that, like, were not acceptable, like, in the... Like, we think of the 90s as this, like, great time for everything, but, like, not, you, you still couldn't do that, like, socially. I just, like, think, for I didn't culture. think the 90s were great at all. The 90s, 90s were awesome. Were, I thought the 90s were fucking awful. They're great. Unless you were gay or black I mean, or I, a woman. I remember parts of the... Most of the 90s, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think they were that good. What, what didn't you like about it? I him? didn't think the 2000s were that good either. No, 2000s were good. It was just all slow nonsense and... It was okay. Just, it's too... It had the musk of men. Oh, yeah, everything has a musk. But even still, we're dealing with the but musk like, of but men. But, like, it's going, it's going away a little bit, which is nice. Not, not as quickly as we, we want it to. No, around. for sure. But, like, I'm of the mind that, like, I just don't want that, all of that. Get rid of that. I don't want it either. It actually, it's actually really funny. Um, uh, I'm looking something up so I can make a comment. Um, they've started posting reviews of um, like licorice pizza, which we talked about, mm. and it's got it had like a hundred percent for a while in Rotten Tomatoes, and now I think it's down to like a ninety-two percent. And one of the things that all the criticism of it is from fairly, it looks like fairly young reviewers saying 
like the re- the central relationship is like problematic between Cooper Hoffman and, and Alana Heim because she's older and he's younger. It's like this kind of has this very male like fantasy component to it of like this is a, of course a white male director's like directing this movie and I think it's gonna be a that that idea is gonna be a thing that we're up against like. We're just not going to shake this idea for a while. We're going to need to get rid of some of these people who are still... I mean, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, but Paul Thomas Anderson is going to make this... He's not going to make a, a different kind of movie. He's never going to make a movie where yeah. the opposite happens. I mean, I still have to see it, but like... I guess what I'm saying is that you're never going to get like... There's still a whole bunch of filmmakers who are out there making films who still have the same... Who, whose perspective is not going to change... Like from fifty to you know year fifty to sixty oh, of yeah. their lives, and and a lot of the women directors now being pointed out are like being for being transgressive or being pointed out because they make men like movies instead of mm. their own sort of thing. Yeah, and I think it's it relates to like one of the movies that we're going to talk about today. I think is is very relevant. Clifford the Big Red Dog, Home Alone, Home Sweet Home Alone. Did you watch that? Oh. Was that right? Was it really just? All, was it really all right? It was terrible, but it was also pretty funny. I've heard that the villains in it are sympathetic, and so it's kind of odd to be rooting against them. So that there is a moment where um, one of the villains gets lit on fire, and you're just like, Meh, I don't know if they deserve that. <laughs> like, I understand that, like, what's happening here, what they have to do. I heard like, it's just like a miscommunication and everything. Right. And... But in a way, that's cool because the stakes are really low, and some of the violence. Um, most of the violence is pretty low stakes. Doesn't one of the guy? Doesn't the guy get shot in the head with with a pool ball? Right, but it's, at, at it's, a high speed. But it's awesome. It's really funny what happens with it. But he would die. <laughs> but the knot on his head is like very humorous, and everyone's yeah. reaction to it is like, whoa! Like, so that's the difference I think between this and and other Home Alones, and I guess this is our first movie. <laughs> Oh, Home Alone. Well, before before we jump into that, oh yeah. Speaking of Home Alone, Home Alone, yeah. This is uh, we're recording this the Tuesday before Christmas, and so I figured Thanksgiving. Tuesday before Thanksgiving. Unless you don't want me to post this until <laughs> the, the Tuesday 23rd. before Thanksgiving, and I thought might as well jump into the Christmas season with a beer. Uh, this is just a double IPA. We're not going to go too crazy yet, but we will go crazy during later into the Christmas season. There were some beers I saw that. Yeah, what are we going to do? I think I think white we, ales. No, I don't think we go into the stouts or anything like that. I mm. think we do the really weird festive ales. Okay, like the coriander, the cinnamon crap. We we haven't done that, right? We haven't done anything. But we haven't done those for like for Christmas. No, we've no, always no, no, done no. like stouts. Stouts. We've everything. been we've kept it dark. We've yeah. kept like beers we like. I say we go into beers we'll probably dislike. But if they're well done, maybe well, we like them. Yeah, well for sure. But this is baby elves. From Fat Orange Cat, it's a double IPA variation of their Baby Kittens, which is a good daily drinker. It is a, is it, it is a, blah, blah, blah. it is a good daily drinker. Yeah. Well, well that was seven percent, but no, but that was in my fridge for a long after we had it on the podcast. I just started seeing it everywhere, and it was like it's cheap my too. Fridge it's like, 10, beer. It's like yeah, 10.99. absolutely. Ooh, this this smells like an Eng- New England style Holy IPA. Holy shit! It's stinky. Not as much of a New England style IPA taste as I expected. I expected flat. more of a. No, it's not flat. It's just not milkshakey. No. You smell a milkshake IPA. Yeah, but it doesn't taste like a milkshake IPA. It just tastes like a double IPA, slight lemon, a little orange, 
It just tastes like normal. a regular double IPA. Normal, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I, that's what I mean by flat. I don't mean like non-carbonated or anything like that. I just mean like it's not like it doesn't punch. Well, yeah, but because the smell is like that milkshake IPA, you expect that like deep frothy mouthfeel. Yeah. You expect a lot of lactose flavor, and instead you just get like. A typical, regular, normal double IPA. Yeah. Old-style New England IPA. A little bit. Oh, you get a little, a, a little bit of the, those hints there. It's just softened up a little mm. bit. A mm. little bit. I don't think there's any lactose added to this. Um, It'd be nice. It's, it's nice. That tastes like a good... That tastes like what New England-style IPAs used to be when I thought they were okay. Mm-hmm. Before like they were like, no, lactose and pumpkin. <laughs> my brother had... Uh, where did my, my brother brought a beer from someplace... To my parents' house, and he poured it out, and it was oh no no we went to my uncle we went to a bar for my uncle's sixtieth birthday, and I don't know what beer my brother got, but it was honestly Mario the haziest foggiest shit I've ever seen in my life. It looked like it was like a Jello beer. It was like a you know one of those rounded goblet glasses that was just like full of of orangey yellow Jello. It was just bizarre. Was it like actually that viscous too? It was super thick. Like and you, you couldn't you'd see. It in a yeah, dip. you couldn't you see anything. Finger in it, it leaves like a finger indentation. <sighs> you stick a toothpick in it to see if it's raw in the middle. If Ian Malcolm had seen that in uh, Jurassic Park, you wouldn't have noticed the steps coming. We've been watching a lot of uh, the world according to Jeff Goldblum on Disney Plus. But you've also been watching to get back to the point, Home Sweet Home Alone. Couple times. Couple times. Bro. <laughs> Couple times. Well, you were talking. You were you were going to right. I'm saying to it. Yeah, that's well. The review is that it's good, but it's also it's awful. But it's got some good jokes. Have, have you seen all five Home Alones? No. Okay. I, I haven't seen three and four. Is there five. four? There's this is the sixth Home Alone movie. Oh my god! There are five Home Alone movies no. before this. I haven't seen. So you've only seen Home Alone and Lost in New York, right? Which are the, like the good ones. I mean, Lost in New York is a little bit of a retread. But at least it opens up a little bit. So My kids fun. love the the uh, the um, house it's got raid. Got former President Tim Curry in it. <laughs> I wish. 2017, 2021. We have oh yeah, that'd be good. No, we have a. Uh, there's a lot of stuff from Home Alone two that's like part of like the stuff we say in our house all the time. Like credit card, you got it. You'd say that literally constantly. <laughs> Anytime anyone needs a credit card for anything. Um, all right. What are we... How, Mario, I think we're... This is yeah, odd. We have, I, we're here together again, like, only... Two weeks after. We two weeks after ahead. we... And I just posted... So it's Tuesday. I just posted our second episode that we recorded that day, today. Yeah. Because I had some free time. I actually did it while I was watching one of our movies. Oh, you posted it today, Tuesday? Yeah. Oh, so it's up now. It's up now, yeah. Okay. So As in Tuesday the 23rd. So these... Not are, as in... Future time. We're not. Rec- this isn't. This is being put up the day after Thanksgiving or the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This will be put up at a normal. So it's a special episode. Well, technically, because guys, you know we're we're pro vaccination. Oh both of yeah. Us, both of us suffered the wrath of the booster. This we did past get weekend. boosters. It didn't. It didn't kick my ass. It just. It just like. I just. It just wiped me out. I was so yeah, I got- tired. I didn't feel bad. I just felt like. Drained of all energy. See, I felt like I had no. Re- you had like a decent reaction. Oh, to I had a hard reaction. Yeah, you were out for three yeah. days. So my reaction to my Pfizer two electric boogaloo was um, <laughs> just like some tiredness that they mm-hmm. like, slept. And I for my booster, like I'm feeling a little mm, on Sunday mm-hmm. um, when I got it. 
and then I just fell asleep and I woke up at like seven. So I fell asleep at like 11, woke up at seven. I don't usually sleep eight hours. I was like, I want to sleep more. So yeah. I slept until like 7.50, tried to go to work and I went into work and like my muscles were just sore as hell mm. until I went to the gym. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that actually like fixed everything. Yep. Like after the gym, I was like, I'm, I'm cool. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I've been, been fine since then. Yeah, it was um good. That's good. Yeah, I also was... got my flu shot at the same time, so like maybe it worked itself maybe it was, out. Maybe maybe no, maybe I had a reaction to, to my flu shot and not my booster. Don't say that. Cuz they've been touting that you can get both together. What if science is wrong, Mario? Oh, no, you but can't I can't get well, both together. No, I might I last year when I got my flu shot for the first time had a, like a slight reaction to it. So I wonder if like I don't really have a reaction to the COVID shot, but I have a reaction. I have a reaction in the sense of you're my body doing body things to protect me. Um, your body doing body things, Mario. If, if your body was doing body things, it wouldn't need a vaccine. It's true. If I just got a, <laughs> if I just got immunized instead of vaccinated. If you just had someone disgusting cough in your mouth, then you wouldn't even need a vaccine. I could also be engaged to somebody from the Descendants. <laughs> I, the problem with Shailene Woodley is I don't even think she wants to be that way. She has those kinds of... The stuff that she's she seems been, to. She seems like an idiot. I mean, Aaron Rodgers also seems like an idiot, but like, I mean, her no. response to stuff has just been like, whoa, I didn't know you were stupid. Like, <laughs> come on, lady. I'm like, Jesus. But maybe you'd have to to be engaged to fucking Aaron Rodgers. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a two-way street. I don't know, Mario. I just love how Miles Teller is also like a super dickhead about this stuff and is like... Oh, is that surprising? Those, well, those two couples, Miles Teller and whoever he's with and Aaron Rodgers and Shailene Woodley are like joined at the hip. That's why they've been, really been postponing Top Gun because they want all this COVID shit to blow over so people don't hate Miles, Miles Teller. Miles Teller in that? Wow. Yeah, he's like the star other than Tom Cruise. That's what, that's and the and the score. They should just mix that movie with Death of the Nile and call it call it a day. You get some Miles Teller, some Army Hammer overlapping. Oh man, the two sides fighting against each other to just forget what's going on. They should make a they should make a movie together. They should be in they should be in Twins, <laughs> the sequel. But I know they already cast Twins the sequel, right? Well, I think it's isn't Twins the sequel just. Danny DeVito, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Eddie Murphy? Or they get somebody else instead of Eddie Murphy? I thought somebody... I mean, that's a movie that doesn't they, matter. All that's right. a movie they keep it's, trying to do. Yeah, let's, let's talk about let's talk the about three movies stuff. that we're actually going <laughs> to review today. Twins. We're getting way off track already. <laughs> uh, so the first movie we're going to talk about is uh, the Netflix film. It's the first... This is the first movie that Netflix is releasing in their Oscar crusade of 2021, right? They have... Power so. of the Dog coming up next week. Yep. Then they have Don't Look Up and something else. There may have been a couple of things like earlier that they were kind of hoping would, but I don't really. I don't. Really I, mean, I think they're some of their foreign films, but I think these these mm. are kind of like their big three. I want to say these are. This is trying to replace replace the Irishman. Yeah, I think. And Roma. Yes, like these. These are the movies that they're well. That Power of the Dog is their big one, right? Um, but these, this, this is the first. This is their. Uh, They'll take any of them, to be honest. This is their pieces of a woman, I guess, for the year. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it yeah. is Lin Manuel Miranda's directorial debut of Jonathan Larson's Tick Tick Boom. I don't know what the show is. Why do we play with fire? 
the workshop happens and nothing changes. What then, Jonathan? Maybe I'm just wasting my time. Do you know how many Jonathan Larsons there are? One. Why should we blaze a trail? There's not enough time. I went to three friends' funerals last year, and nobody is doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Try writing about what you know. What does it take to wake up a generation? It would be a tragedy to give up what you have. Take off and fly. Fear or love, baby, don't say the answer. Actions speak louder than Tick, Tick, Boom is an adaptation of a Jonathan Larson monologue, rock monologue that he did, um, basically exploring his difficulty in directing and writing a, his first kind of major musical that is trying to basically get him into the Broadway, Alf Broadway spotlight mm-hmm. um, called Superbia, uh, a 1984 space rock opera. Uh, he is dealing with the stuff you knew Jonathan Larson would say he dealt with if you ever listened to that fucking garbage La Biba Hen song. Um, oh, God. Everything about that song is literally everything I hate with that art class of people. At least, I, I haven't encountered those types of people since high school and mm-hmm. like college. But like Those people are like, oh, or like we're not going to pay rent. It's like, fucking pay your rent. Yeah. There's nothing wrong. What's, what's Tay Diggs doing wrong? He just wants you to pay your rent. Well, on the anyways, let's get, let's get through this. Let's get through this. So he's you know working on this play while also um, dealing with being poor because he's an art struggling artist and working at a diner and uh, dealing with his relationship with Susan. The diner seems awesome. Yeah, seems fun. It's got ev- it's got the musical uh, Broadway Andre Shields Avengers. is hanging out there. Fucking BB Newworth is hanging out there. Yeah. People that aren't even famous yet or old enough to be in that diner are hanging out there. Yeah, doing moves that weren't <laughs> even invented. Absolutely. In in, in Renee Lee Goldsberry and Philip Bazoo doing Hamilton things. <laughs> you got like in 1989. You got, you got your hobos played by three of the original cast members of Rent. Oh yeah 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 yeah. One of those hobos did look like a little. Like like a high class hobo. Uh, yeah, who was I? I will look it up later. Who played the hobos? Um, anyhow, he is who struggling the hobos? to uh, write a kind of second act song that's going to be the major piece to tie it on because earlier when he had workshopped it, Stephen Sondheim, played by you know, Bradley Whitford. Bradley Whitford. <laughs> was good. I thought it was, well, that was I, good. I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. but like doing like a weird like choice. I love I Richard Steven Kind Sondheim. playing Richard Kind. Yeah, but with for sure. a beard. He played like he played it like he played uh, his press secretary character mm. from Spin City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyways, he struggles with it. Uh, eventually, uh, he's also dealing with the fact that Susan, his girlfriend, wants to move to the Berkshires to mm-hmm. be a dance teacher. Um, and he's like, "No, I'm an artist." Blah blah. blah. Um, I must be in New York. Yeah. Let, I, I'll get to that in a second. Like one thing I. I actually do enjoy about this uh one of the things i enjoy about this um anyhow uh, he's also dealing with uh, his relationship with his friend and he's kind of like uh, 
friend, longtime friend, uh, Mike. Um, eventually, he kind of finds some inspiration for the song. He writes the song, but he's still kind of stuck in his own head and stuck in his own world and not really kind of growing up with it. Um, he finds out his best friend is HIV positive because the undercurrent of this set in the early Michael. 90s. Yep. Yeah, Michael's... Um, Undercurrent of this is, of course, the AIDS crisis and Jesse Helms being a Republican. Um, well, and all the theater stuff. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of people that have, like, talked a lot about the fact that, um, you know, one of the things that was lost in the early 90s with, like, the AIDS crisis is, like, a lot of people, like, that would have appreciated a lot of the art that, like, people like Jonathan Larson and stuff were doing. Um, like, you lost a whole, like... His heart also hated the art that Jonathan Larson was doing. <laughs> That's not nice. That's not nice at all. I was trying to make a nice <laughs> point. And you're just like... Boosh. But I guess it's been long enough. Yeah, you... no. Uh, you're going to have to make me edit this. <laughs> no, it's Because you're going to text me later and be like, oh, take no, I, that, that, that I think that, that's, that's a way past... It's been 35, or 25 years. That's fine. Um, if anyone's listening to this, like this will be like our 100 and whatever post... If anyone's listening to this now and being like, whoa, I can't listen to these guys anymore. Yeah. Like, you must have just started listening. That's also something I, I that's not cancel worthy. It's sad that I died. Oh my, whatever. Imagine if you got canceled. Over that. Um, anyways, he uh, kind of accepts the fact that he's going to pursue his art, but that he's also going to make time for his for his friend, mm-hmm. who's, who's, you know, going to have basically a year left to live. Mm-hmm. Um, Susan goes off um, to become a dance instructor, and he's told that his suburbia play just isn't viable, but that he has something there. Stephen Sondheim, actually the voice of Stephen Sondheim, yeah, yeah, that was the cool. message, um, says it's a great play and just to keep doing it. So then he's told by his agent to write something that's personal. Uh, that leads into his production of Tick, Tick, Boom, and eventually would lead into his creation of Rent. Yeah. And that is Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, I've talked extensively, I think, throughout. I think a through line through the second half of our podcast mm-hmm. has been uh, how much I think Lin-Manuel Miranda sucks. <laughs> um I, no, think I don't think heights. it's been a through line, but it's definitely. But like, like every a, time we brought a, up, every time we've brought up Lin Manuel Miranda, I'm just like, this is terrible. I, I still think Hamilton stinks. Hmm. Uh, In the Heights was I just saw Hamilton good on um, Broadway. Sorry, it was good. Uh, well, yeah, I I I'm sorry. Th- imagining myself in your place, being me. No, you would have been like, nah, this is all right. I don't think they're so. right there. I doubt that. <laughs> I saw Avenue Q second row, and I was still like, this sucks. What's Avenue Q? Yeah, but I think Avenue Q is more in line with something I would appreciate than Hamilton. I, I, as a <laughs> I child, I hated, as a child, I actually hated Alexander Hamilton. So, oh, like, yeah. it's, it grows from there. Aaron Burr did nothing wrong. That's why I get canceled for Well, Aaron Burr also, no, they all did. The, the problem with Hamilton, from a historical perspective, is that they all did wrong Alexander stuff. Hamilton... This, uh, this, this is an aside, and then I'll get back on tom- topic. Alexander Hamilton, trying to protest the duel itself, lifted his gun and shot in the air, hitting a branch above Aaron Burr's head. Not realizing that when you want to protest a duel, the common courtesy of that point was to shoot the gun at the ground. Mm. Aaron, the, the tree that Alexander Hamilton hit was like five, 
six or five feet above Aaron Burr's head. So they were doing a wounding duel. Aaron Burr freaked the fuck out and thought Hamilton tried to shoot him in the head. And so he well, there's, I mean, it's But you're talking like duel stuff. I'm even talking like way before duel stuff. Like oh, Alexander yeah. Hamilton is terrible. Yeah, the central bank idea. No, was... no, no. But you're, you're, you're Marioing all over this stuff. Just like he, from an American standpoint, he stood for tons of stuff that like current America hates. Like he was... He wasn't just kind of, like, bummed that George Washington didn't want to run for, like, a third term. He was like, you should just declare yourself king of America. Because we love... He was a love fucking kings. He loved them. Yeah, I guess I I, I did borrow that. But going, the central bank was a pretty bad idea. And I led... It led to Jackson decentralizing it. Let me tell you about, like... Let me tell you about, like, proper dual etiquette and central bank. Anyways. Back to the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will eat a bit of crow by saying that this, I think, is is incredibly well-directed. Yeah. I think it's a yep. good... Miranda, I think, has always had the fault line of being too much in his... Like, having too much of his own energy mm-hmm. in anything he does. Yep. Uh, he's in this, but really a very small side character. And you're not really pointed out that no. Lin-Man Miranda's there. His dad's in a slight, little small scene. Uh-huh. Um, this feels through and through like a Larson. Like it feel it, it yeah. Like Larson, I have things to say about that too, but this. I agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's problems with that because Larson is well, a little saccharin and a I'll little. Just, I'll, I'll just say it real quick is that I think one of the things, one of the ways that Miranda is in here is that Larson is clearly a big influence on Miranda. Yeah. So Miranda can't direct a Larson without and be and just be present in it without it feeling somewhat like a Miranda because Miranda just kind of he just got a lot of stuff. From John Larson, he just he just did, so it it they feel interlinked in that way, absolutely uh, because of that. And and the thing that I appreciate almost about this direction, and I usually a lot of times criticize this, is um, the the three wall structure in a mm-hmm. film of mm-hmm. of you know not having a lot of textuality or depth. I said the same thing about a net, um, oh, and yeah. that wasn't I don't think that was an intent, but yep. I think it's an intent here to shoot this like. A musical. Yeah. It all at all times only has basically three walls to it. There's not a lot of dimensionality. All most of your shots, you know, you know, your camera moves around and you know you're blocked around into a film. Mm-hmm. There's still this general sense that there is one side that the audience is viewing it through. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, even a scene that I had to rewatch, uh, the swimming song scene, mm-hmm. where you know Miranda kind of inserts himself where. Um, Garfield Larson touches the bottom of the swimming pool when he's trying to find inspiration. Does, yeah. Does a little dust off and you can see the musical notes while that song kind of crescendos. Yep. I thought it was just great. It's like his touch, Good. but I think that's great. Yeah. And it adds, it's, it's got like a hokiness to it. It's got like this yep. really weird saccharine, um, a little too positive vibeness to it, but it works because that's all Larson does. Like Larson kind of like, at least from Rent, that felt like Larson's through line was like really serious topics, but presented mm-hmm. in a way where you're ultimately going to have a comedic <clears throat> kind of flourish yep. and finish. And I think Miranda does a great job with that. I think he directs the shit out of this. Um, Garfield's fantastic. Garfield is the, the one of the top four performances I've saw this year. Hmm. The, the one that everyone calls number one, he fucking blows that guy out of the water. Oh, yeah. The we'll film we'll talk about. Oh, next. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
he has the Larson. Like I've seen some like interviews or images of Larson. Uh, not images, but like some videos of Larson. He has like kind of the weird mannerisms and movements down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just from like the supporting cast and everything, I love uh, Robin to Jesus, 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 mm-hmm. Robin, Robin to Jesus. He's great. I think the cast. I think the yeah. cast. Even Vanessa Hudgens, who being living in a house with someone who has watched, I, I've had to watch the High School Musical movies. So many times, Mario. I can't even express is, to you. I didn't even know it was her. This is what I've, I really am growing to appreciate about Vanessa Hutchins over like kind of like that kind of class of Disney stars. Yeah. Is she has kind of like sunk into... She's very much like a supporting character, mm-hmm. but she's not... She doesn't try to make like herself stand out. She really blends well into like ensemble pieces. She kind of did the same thing... Like in Bad Boys for Life, to kind of <laughs> mention that. Oh, like I, didn't a see, weird thing. I didn't end up seeing Bad Boys um, for Life, yeah. But she kind of just blends in as just like one of the other people. Even though like Vanessa Hutchins is a name, she's not trying to like... When she's in something where she's not supposed to be the focus, she's mm-hmm. not trying to make herself the focus. And when she has that kind of... She was in a movie called Machete Kills? Oh, it's a Robert no, Rodriguez that's movie. that's the... Uh, yeah, the Machete... It's the... Uh, oh, Machete Kills. Yeah. I get it. Okay, it's a movie. But when she does the um, kind of duet with Come to Your Senses with Alexander Ship, That was great. It's great. And that's it's so intelligent. I don't know if this was in the original play of, of choosing to have Susan not really have a number yep. before then until that. Like, Vanessa Hutchins even still kind of like sinks into that background to let Alexander well, Ship take that over. But I also think it's it works that... Uh, the reason I think that works so well is, one, I think it's cool. They sound really great together. And I don't think Alexander they have two complimentary, Sh- yeah, but really distinct vo- vocal style. I don't think Alexander Ship is a great um, singer, and Vanessa, she's serviceable. She's not bad. But Vanessa Hudgens is supposed to be playing the professional singer, so Vanessa Hudgens just goes to do some stuff, and Alexander, Alexander Ship is supporting it. And when that's when that's happening, it really it really works, and I think that's. One of the things, I think you're right. I haven't seen enough Vanessa Hudgens sing other than the High School Musical. When Vanessa Hudgens is singing with somebody in this, it works really, really, really well. Even the guy that's doing the Michael part in the production yeah. of Tick, Tick, Boom, who I don't even know what that guy's name is. Um, Freddie? Is it, no, no, not Freddie. Uh, what's that guy's name in the movie? Oh, yeah, keep, keep going to your point. I'll, Doesn't I'll matter. Find it. Um, but he's, that guy sings, that guy's a fucking. Beast as a singer. Uh, is it is it Josh? Is it Roger? Is it Roger? Yeah, it's Roger. Okay, they, right. they, yeah, yeah. that guy's great. Um, but when the when Andrew Garfield and Vanessa Hudgens and that guy sing together, um, in a couple of instances, it sounds really good. She does have um, a, a vocal quality that seems designed to. Uh, like harmonize with people and to blend really well um, with people. Yeah, and I, I think, I, I yeah, I think there's there, I think there's enough like I don't want to there's just it, there's a real inherent love letter quality to this that I think overall works. It's it's I, I was anticipating just so much like of his voice in this mm-hmm. of Miranda's voice in this and I was anticipating so much like over direction and the only scene that like I feel as though has that bombasticness to it that Sunday part um, the Sunday kind of like brunch song um, oh yeah 
Which it's, is it's, funny. It's, it's fun. It's fun yeah. as hell. Like, and it ends in that kind of bombastic note where the wall separates and you get like that Sunday. And, but it works so well. Right. Because like that's like a center funny piece. Right. And nothing else after that. Like choosing to just have... Um, oh, I found them. I found who the, the, the um, hobos were. Adam Pascal, Daphne Rubin Vega, and Wilson Germain Heredia. So Mimi, Roger, and Angel? I don't know. I think they were real Angel. It was... Who was the third one? Wilson Germain. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's Angel. Because okay. um, Jesse, whatever, the guy from Law and Order was um, Angel's boyfriend, who doesn't really matter. He's a character that's not really a character. He gets beat up. Ice T? No. He was from the, orig- the actual Law and Order. He was uh, partners with uh, Jerry Orbach. Oh, yeah. Jesse yeah. Martins. Jesse Martins, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, because that, that scene's supposed to, like, that Sunday song is supposed to be funny. And, it is funny, and it's fun, yeah. It's hilarious, and, like, to have it be so bombastic. And, like, swimming is 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 another one that kind of like, a little bit of, like, hokiness, but it works. But then, like, to choose with why, kind of, like, the big number. Mm-hmm. To just choose to have, you know, Andrew Garfield at the piano playing and have some, like, scenes playing mm-hmm. in the back, like, playing, overlapping it. That, like, to not go big mm-hmm. there is is a smart choice. I think Miranda makes like really smart choices throughout. But here's the thing. So um are you are you done? Are you done, Mario? Overall, like with I mean I I have an answer. No, 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 no. Like, I don't I want to done. I want to make sure I'm not stepping on. No, 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 you're, like, you're okay. not. No. I think that that's a really interesting point that you just made about about um why because it does feel but it feels it feels huge yeah absolutely but he's not doing anything huge with it and i think there's a really interesting comparison to be drawn between the two miranda things that were released this year so you have your in the heights earlier in the year and you have this one of the things that i fucking hated about in the heights was the way that john chu uses um uh special effects and um computer generated rolls of fabric falling from the fucking sky (laughs) and like dancing on the sides of buildings and all this other garbage. Miranda keeps it, he uses it, but he keeps it very light. Okay. So when he goes underwater, you know, in swimming and he brushes away that like 30 and like the notes show up, it's very low key. It's very low stakes, but it also relates to what is happening inside of his head. He's taking all these notes. He's listening to all these things. He's by swimming, by removing himself from kind of like having to think about stuff, these things put themselves together in his mind and you get yourself a song. So the special effects are rooted in in some kind of, um, not just emotional, but narrative, but, but, but like a film... Uh, motif and not only that I think actually I think it's it's rooted and I appreciate this while I was watching it a practicality yes to the theater. yes like so swimming is the big number where it's like yeah there's and there's that the song big CGI stinks but I like uh, uh, but I like I appreciate I'm not, I'm not a Larson I appreciate guy. the Larson right. like yes, hoking, like the Larson saccharine we were arguing about this over text earlier but I can imagine like a, a scene where like you get you know Larson kind of fake swimming and or whatever. You you have on the wall like the thirty meters whatever. Yeah. He brushes it away, and then you just have two people in full black unroll the music notes. Mm-hmm. Like that's the big piece. Like Sunday completely can be staged. Like it looks it looks like it's on a stage. It is, but it, it but it also but I think I mean, it has CGI stuff going with absolutely. it. Absolutely, but, but going back to Sunday, I think one of the things that Sunday works because it's 
the lyrics are so funny. It's not supposed to be a serious yeah. like song. You know what I mean? It's not supposed to be it's not supposed to have like all these high stakes. You know what I mean? It's part of the production of you know, the rock monologue, which is a thing that I love and now I feel like I want to try to write a rock monologue. Um I'll write a mo- rock monologue about the central bank. Yeah. Um but just like in a certain <laughs> period of time. Um it has a, it has no stakes compared to what 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 else is happening in the show, but because the whole thing is a love because all John Larson wants to do is be on Broadway, and this whole thing is a love letter to John Larson, like having a song that's a love letter to Broadway in a lot of ways, even though it's not, feels right. Like there was nothing yeah. about that except for the Hamilton move. Like the Skylar Sisters thing, like that bummed me out because it didn't even exist. I'm cool getting them in there. Renee Lee Goldsberry is old enough that she might have been hanging around. Like I don't know, I don't know what her. And you got, you got what's his, well, what's his name from Hades Town? Andre uh, DeShields. Yeah, and I love some Andre DeShields. Um, you get a lot of people. But he the, wasn't. He wasn't huge until he wasn't huge until early 2000s. No, right? but he was around. That's yeah. the thing. He was around. Um, I love Hades Town. Is like big breakout. Was he big before then? Well, he won his Tony for for Hades Town. Okay. Um, you know, I love like the Bernadette Peters thing. Like that, she they they're watching her on the show, and then like she comes in, and he. But I think the thing that anchors this all together is this really uneven, but great performance from Andrew Garfield. Um, uneven because I think. Lin-Manuel Miranda's one mistake, and it's a joint mistake that they make, is, like, the staged tick-tick boom with, like, the narrative tick-tick boom because Andrew Garfield is playing a role. He's playing John Larson. And then when he's doing the staged version of tick-tick boom, he's playing the role of John Larson, playing the role of John Larson on stage. And it just gets a little... Weird, muddled. Yeah, and I and so like there's I don't have. I, I mean, think, it works in um the one it works in therapy. It works. It, it, it works in the songs, but like when yeah. he's discussing it, it's kind of a little. It's it's it, a little big. It's just it's like it's but almost like it, it's two different characters, and I don't want to have to process the two different characters. I would rather just. And I think you mentioned practicality before. I think that one of the reasons I think the song succeeds so well is because the song or the, uh, one Sunday of the, or therapy. No, no, the whole the movie. I, I didn't mean song. I meant movie. Is what's the? I, I don't even know the name of the song. Um, when him and Michael go to look at Michael's apartment. Oh, uh, <clears throat> whatever the name of that song is. All of the stuff that's happening there. No more. No more. Okay. Yeah. All the stuff that's that happening there when they're like doing the slow motion stuff in the lobby, that's all just practical effects. It's just people throwing glitter. And if Lin-Manuel Miranda had his druthers, he would probably have, when like the woman slides across the floor and th- or the guy slides across the floor before Andrew Garfield gets on the elevator and throws glitter up in the air. If you watch the movie, there's glitter in like a third of the screen. Okay, and if if Lin Manuel Miranda wanted to, he probably could have added some CGI glitter to the whole thing, or he would have done all the glitter in CGI. And if it was in the Heights, he would have done the glitter, and it would have been flying in our faces somehow. But it's all just practical. Like here's a person sliding across the floor, throwing some glitter, and all that slow motion stuff works. It just it just it the movie feels good. It's got a big 
big fucking heart, and I'm not making like a I'm not trying to make a pun there. Um, I don't think Marfan disease means you have a big heart. I just think it means you have a kind of broken heart. It's got a big it's got a big heart. Um, and it's and I think he did a good I think he did a good job. It's not my favorite movie of the year. No, but it's it's not even it's maybe not in my top five. But it's it, probably it's probably my top five right now. But it now. it's I think it's really good. Yeah. I think he, I think he did a really good job. And, and the one compliment I'll give to Jonathan Larson about this is like uh, it's happy to have a musical. And I mentioned this within the Heights, where New York's everyone lives in New York City, and New York City's mentioned, but it's not a fucking character. Mm. It was that's like such a relief. For me, see, like, but I was kind of hoping that it, I was I was kind of looking for it to be more of a character. I thought it was weird that we didn't see more of it because you're so because you're because you've been emotionally corrupted. I guess by so. the totality of Broadway musicals set in modern time that are like New York's a character. I'm gonna be very honest with you. It might have that been Spider-Man musical that flopped. The Mary Harmon one. I think it's Mary Harmon that did that. The U2 one. Was it U2? Yeah, I think. And no, I think, it was uh, U2 uh, turn off the dark. and it was Turn Off the Dark. dark yeah. yeah. Like that had New York has like like a big character in it. Go fuck it's Spider Man. No, right. but here's this I, doesn't have New York. This is a meme. It doesn't about right. musicals. Yeah, like they talk about Soho. They talk about you know where they are. New York is a part of brunch and all that. The New York mentality is a part of it. Yep. And I also appreciate the fact that like his like pursuit of the arts is nice, but also criticized. Like this is kind of things I'll, I'll give credit to Larson for mm-hmm. doing. Because I think Rent fails in a lot of ways because it's just like an adoration of art. Because it's fucking goofy as shit. It's, it's goofy. About, like, it's goofy, things. but it's also like very teenage and it's kind of like themes. Like this has a little more complexity where it's saying like, yeah, Larson's kind of a selfish asshole at times. Well, can I be? New York is not so much of a central character. It has its own faults and whatever. I think it's. I, I think that. this movie. I think the musical, and I, I guess I wish I had seen like a production of it. I guess this musical seems to work for me because it seems much more stripped down than Rent, which seems hysterical in its bigness and like the size of its cast and the, its like huge fucking songs. And I love the idea that it's very. And I think one of the things I want to give, and we can move on from here. One of the things I want to give, actually, this is a good segue, unless you have anything else to say, because I'm going no. to talk about subtlety, except for the fact that. I will say this before we move on. Yeah. We, we, we're seeing suburbia become a thing within the next three or four years. Right? I, I mean... Like Netflix does that. Like they go I like suppose. Miranda, well, because this. they did... Who did that fucking... Um, Lin-Manuel Miranda, before he did In the Heights, was part of like a rap collective. And they made a documentary about like the rap collective. Not Netflix, some uh, maybe Disney Plus, maybe HBO Max. I don't. Maybe it was HBO Max before. Oh, before In the Heights film came out. No, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's no, part not, of the same. Not thing. before two thousand five when. No, no, no. no but like that's out. when it happened. That's when it was existed. Yeah. And somebody made a documentary about that, and that is actually getting like a Broadway. Mm. That's getting like a Broadway run. Um, that little rap collective show thing that they did. Um, what I'll say is that. There's a subtle thing. What I'll give credit for to Miranda for is something that he's not usually very good at, which is subtlety. Um, there's some, it's surprisingly subtle. Yeah, there's some subtle stuff in here in the sense that like uh, John Larson keeps acquiring these, you know, musicians. Slowly, he's acquired musicians, and then, but you don't really, you know, it's kind of talked about in the second half of the the movie, and then. You kind of put it together, 
And again, it has no narrative value. It's just kind of it's a, just an aesthetic thing that that's cool. Is that like you know when he's doing his show, he has a full complement of musicians, but it's still not a Broadway orchestra. Okay, even if it's a rock, whatever, any Broadway musical is going to have like a Broadway-sized orchestra playing. It doesn't matter how many electric guitars you have; you're still going to have all the other stuff. This thing, whatever Tick Tick Boom was, or Superbia was, or was meant to be, really benefits from being stripped down to like its most component parts: a guy on a piano, two singers singing parts. You know what I mean? Which is essentially essentially three characters: drums, bass, uh, you know, some horns, a couple of horns, and whatever. Um, but it's stripped down to nothingness. And one of the things I've always fucking hated about Rent is that, like, they're trying to be like, we're so poor, we have nothing, except for this huge fucking sound that's, like, created around and us all 30, the time. And 30 people on a table during La Viva Him. Uh-huh. Rent is such, like... I will say this, as a 8, 17, 18-year-old is exposed to Rent by his girlfriend at the time, like, 17, 18-year-old me appreciates Rent... Has the access point to that world? Of... Well, I guess so. And my problem is that I got my thing. When I, think I, was... good, I think it's a good kind of like taster. When I was 10, 11, 12. Um... It's the Sierra Nevada of musicals. It's the, it's the all day IPA of musicals. No, no. All day IPA. No, that's, that's a better beer. The Sierra Nevada Pale Ale of musicals. Um, when, I was at, when I was 10, 11, 12, Andrew Lloyd Webber stuff was like my jam. And I was, I was like obsessed. I'm still obsessed with Jesus Christ Superstar. I still, I, I still like Phantom. I like, I sometimes just drive around like almost near tears listening to like Judas do anything on Jesus Christ Superstar. It's just fucking kicks my ass. Every I time. unapologetically like the uh, Phantom of the Opera 2004 movie. Even though Gerard Butler's in it. I mean, he's terrible, but like Emma Rossum like rocks that role. <laughs> I like Emma Rossum. I can't believe Gerard Butler got cast in that. <laughs> I mean, she's nothing compared to what Sarah Brightman and I mean Sarah Brightman and Buggy, Michael Crawford and Michael Crawford ruined that. But like, love Michael Crawford. I love no. Michael Crawford because Michael Crawford is still so like 1967. Hello, Dolly, and everything he does, but he makes everything work. It still blows my mind that Sarah Brightman just looks like Sarah Brightman still too. Sure, of course. What else is she gonna look like? But like, she's not human. Yeah, <laughs> she, she's like a. She's like a singing fairy, like just brought in from someplace. <laughs> um, and she hits the best thing, part about Sarah Brightman. And now we're, t- I mean, we're we're forty four minutes into this Mario, and like we are turning people off like that. Sarah Brightman, when I was a kid, when I like was learning to sing, I would like listen to her sing, and she would just like, just hit fucking notes that people would need to like go get that Celine fucking Dion who everyone thinks is a or Mariah Carey would need to go get Sarah Brightman's like no I just have it it's just right here you mean this here's a note I've had had this in my whatever it's just like okay you know what our next you know we can hit a lot of things you know what our next main character oh so we can go either way you know what our next main character seems to have in his pocket all the time is a a fart a brochure (laughs) a fart is a brochure. Brochure. Here, oh, 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 Mr. Sampras, you are, here's a brochure. Take a brochure. Blah, blah, blah. Um, <clears throat> that movie is... Um... King Richard. I wrote me a 78-page plan for their whole career before they was even born. Yeah, baby, yeah! <laughs> These girls so great, how come I've never heard them? They're from Compton. It's okay. They're just not used to seeing good-looking peoples like us. Yeah. 
She's nervous. Take a step up. Maybe she ought to take a few more steps up. Just get someplace safe. I think you might just have the next Michael Jordan. Oh, no, brother man. I got me the next, too. What's the next step you got to take? You're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on Earth. They're not going to let you doubt. How could you? This world ain't never had no respect for Richard Williams, but they're going to respect y'all. You don't walk out there with your head up. You are a champion, and the whole world knows it. The most dangerous creature on this whole earth. It's a woman who know how to think. Yes, Daddy. Ain't nothing she can't do. You gonna show them how dangerous you are? Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. Venus Williams, who is your best friend? Hey, Daddy. Serena Williams, who is your best friend? Venus. Then you. Then you. After Venus. King Richard is the, the biopic of um, Richard Williams, the father of, of Serena and Venus Williams, um, and how he created, um, essentially, uh, the two greatest female, or two greatest women tennis players ever, um, you could argue that they're the I think, two I think, greatest I think tennis female players tennis ever? players is actually grammatically okay. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't really. I mean, I want to get it right, but like. I've been told it's fine. It, yeah. If it's used as a adjective, it's okay. Okay. But I guess what I want to say is that like they could both also be just the greatest, two of the greatest tennis players that ever lived. Yeah, Serena and they probably is often Serena is the greatest. And Venus is on in the top ten of greatest tennis tennis players, whatever gender. Whatever at the very least, whatever at the very least in the open air, absolutely. Um, movie stars Will Smith as uh Richard Williams. Um, it also stars uh Anjanou Ellis as uh, how do you what's her name? I want to get it right. I just call her Brandy, Brandy, or a scene, uh, Williams, um. Sonia Sidney as Venus and Demi Singleton as uh, Serena, John Singleton's daughter. And Tony Goodwin escaped hell I to loved, be in this movie. I loved, I mean, we'll talk about that. It also serves Tony Goodwin as a, he plays a tennis coach. John Bernthal plays um, Rick Macy, who that role should have gone to Luke Wilson. And in another era, he's just played by Luke Wilson because Rick Macy and Are Luke you? Wilson look exactly like each other. Are you not a big John Berthold fan? I thought this? he was fucking great in it. Oh, okay. Good. But just from like a looks perspective, he looks <laughs> yeah. exactly like, like John Luke Ber- Wilson. I, I looked up like, like, well, I saw Rick Macy at the end of the film. I'm like, John Berthold's way too attractive to be playing Rick Macy. Oh yeah. No, no. Um, not that like Luke Wilson and Rick Macy, like, but John Berthold's like, I will get, we'll get it to the next movie where I talk about distractingly attractive actors. Um, <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Um, I mean, that's really what it is. It tracks their beginnings um, from when the girls um, have been playing tennis. They've been training, playing tennis for a while. They train in the rain. They train in the dark. They have to... I mean, we started in 91, correct? I think, I think it's, it's earlier than that. Maybe 90, 91? Because we obviously get the Rodney King. 
We get the um, Rodney King, but they've already they've already been playing, playing for and a while. she's I already been winning junior. So the movie titles. I would guess the movie starts in ninety, maybe ninety, yeah, maybe okay. eighty nine. But it doesn't. I mean, it's eighty nine, ninety, ninety one yeah. is kind of like when the bulk of the first hour and fifteen minutes of this way too long movie. This movie's an hour and forty five minutes long. Twenty two. It says forty five right here in Wikipedia. That's two hours and twenty five minutes. Right, I'm saying an hour and forty five minutes. As, or 145 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> your stupid 9% double IPA, Mario. God, <laughs> fuck your double IPA. Um, it, so it just tracks their, it tracks their progression with a skip in the middle where um, Venus is not playing. Venus stops playing in the, the junior league. Yeah, we definitely skip from either late 91, early 92 to, to the mid yeah, October right. 94. Um, she... October 94 is when she becomes pro. Right. And so she goes pro. She goes... The movie ends where she plays um, a match against... The world Arancha Sanchez-Vicario, who is the world number one. She's from Spain. Um, she's on the verge of beating Arancha Sanchez-Vicario when she... When Arancha Sanchez-Vicario says she has to go to the bathroom for 10 minutes. She ices Venus. Uh, Venus ends up losing, but she learns a valuable life lesson. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a biopic, so there's... Am I still am I still on? Yeah, I guess I'm just not hearing myself very well. Um, it's a biopic, so it's not doing. There's nothing subtle going on here. There's no kind of like side stories or or anything else happening. I guess the one side story is like the Venus thing uh, or the Serena thing that's kind of happening underneath. No, uh, excuse. No, there's also the what the Crips are blood side story that populates the first forty minutes. But of it's the movie. gone when it's when it's gone. It's gone. It's not like it hangs out yeah, for a long time. But unfortunately, it inhabits the first thirty minutes of this film. My in, so my take on this movie is that I feel like it's very. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's not a lot of like so in. I guess in the next movie we're going to talk about and in Tick Tick Boom, there's a lot going on. There's like an undercurrent of narratively relevant things that are happening. This movie kind of chooses to. To stick so hard with Richard Williams, um, I think to its to its detriment, like in the end, um, that it almost seems like there's nothing else happening in the world except for whatever is going on in Richard Williams's head. And even when he sees other stuff going on, he just uses it to create a new version of reality for himself. So like the Rodney King stuff, the Jennifer Capriati stuff, he filters everything through his own kind of very myopic lens. And, it's, and then and then churns out a new rule or regulation for his family. And, well, that's that's not even that's not even the problem. I, I guess, think I, I think, guess, I think the problem is like that's fine, but like the Richard Williams presented in this film kind of is has a straightforward path. He has one narrative arc in the terms of like di- dictating what Venus is going to do, um, and is validated what, at the end. It's validated at the end, but like dictating how it's going to be. Until he has like that that kitchen conversation mm-hmm. with um, Anjanu Ellis, who's who's great. In She's very movie. good. Uh, like she fucking destroys Will Smith in that scene. In terms that was of, un- uh, in terms of a performance, and that was uncomfortable. And it yeah, wasn't because of the two characters; it was because it's just he uncomfortable stinks. because he can't he can't yeah. keep up with her. I don't know what the fuck people are saying about he deserves a best actor nomination. Because come on, um, I almost feel like we'll get there, but that's an appropriate place to put that. But like. Uh, that that's his one narrative turn, and I think where this movie where this movie fails and falters is the, is is the fact that like he's a there is not much of a narrative growth in that character. No. Like he has he has a even plan. when they try to tell he us that there through. is, we do have that narrative turn. That's the one of the better scenes in the film is is that moment because you know 
Andre Newell's just fucking destroys it. Um, and I think like the supporting cast of this movie fucking great. does great work. Great. Um, but Sonia Sydney. I think Sonia is okay. Sonia Sydney as Venus Williams is fucking fantastic. Great as well. Like she was amazing in this too. Like, and that's 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 also. But yeah, get back to the point. Yeah, So he has such a straight and narrow narrative path that it just in the end you you end up watching it going why. And and my really biggest I I don't enjoy this movie. Um, I think it's I think it's it's second hour and like the hour and forty minutes that it actually becomes a sports biopic yep. is good. It's good. It's really good. Yep. Because it starts like focusing on Sydney. It focuses and she's a fucking hell of an actress. She also ruins it. Like Will Smith does decent work in the uh the scene where she is asking him why he won't let her turn pro and he mm-hmm. mentions, you know, getting beat by the by the white men. Um like that's a good I think that's 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 Will Smith's best scene in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um but like when she owns that, like when she's showing the frustration on her face when she's losing the first round Bank of the West match. Yep. Um, and then when she's showing kind of like excitement and then confusion um, against uh, Vicario mm-hmm. in that second match and that kind of elation on her face in the end, like all oh, that's great, all that works. Unfortunately, this movie has 40 fucking minutes in the beginning where we're just focusing on Will Smith doing a caricature. Of, yeah. of Richard Williams, mm-hmm. I feel like like he just feels like he has I to tune. Right. He has to feel like he has to tune into the voice of Richard Williams and oversell. Like, the grind. I don't. I don't know much about like. I haven't seen a tremendous amount of Richard Williams stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Richard Williams didn't feel like he had that much of an articulation in like his style of speaking. I don't. I mean, I haven't watched any footage because I don't care. I mean, all I remember. All I remember is the signs, which well, my, I, was he, fine, but. That first, just to the point, the first thirty yeah. minutes, especially dealing with a, was it? it's Tundi, the the older yeah. daughter, and the entire blood seek or crypt sequence, is so utterly pointless but, to the entirety of that film. Like the rest of that movie, has nothing to do with Richard Williams developing a backbone. Has nothing like where he's getting beat by like by those guys mm-hmm. has it all has to do with like him running away from problems and none of that's present you cut out everything after that kid gets shot from that movie mm. and make it an hour and 40 minute movie where you get a really strong-headed dad but mario doing it it's i think <laughs> i i actually would say like it's one of the more successful biopics that it okay. sports sports biopics that have been released what you're but it has yes. 40 minutes that suck but in what the you're beginning. talking about is not king richard what you're talking about is Queen Venus, if you want, okay, and that's the difference here. Is that this movie has this movie is not, and I respect the fact that like Venus and Serena love I'm, their dad and have made right. like a love Which letter is fine. to the dad. It's awesome. I'm bummed about the fact that this movie is this movie is framed in a way that it's about his his arc and his methods and being. Um, vindicated by the end of the movie, it doesn't, it doesn't become interesting until he lets Venus take right. the ring. And that's the thing; it's a that's like when you get this... Rich Summer talking to you know uh, talking to to uh, Sonia Sydney, mm-hmm. like she like where Richard Williams like Will Smith is like talk to her, and you get Rich Summer going like, uh, love Rich Summer, yeah. I mean, uh, table. He's a big board game guy. So oh, is he? Yeah, I just like he's have a board game podcast. I like. Um, a, I mean, I love that those first couple of seasons of Mad Men. Um, I like a lot of movies that he's 
like, yeah, he's, kind of a, uh, just that guy. Yeah, this in... kind of like nerdy white guy vibe. And the fact, like, when he's talking to her, and there's like that palpable tension, and she's just looking at it, going like, "I can do better." But he, like, that's that's right. a that's a fucking great movie there. But, but I, then, like, because I, there's an arc to that character. Right, there's an arc to that character, and it's informed by her father, and she's kind of growing. She's kind of coming into her own. But I think the thing that I dislike about this movie is that the thing that I want to see is I want to see her arc. Like so, there's move. There's times when we're pulled away from the girls because we're focusing on Richard, and I could give two fucking shits about Richard because Richard trained them, and I guess he molded them, but he didn't win any titles. Like they, and he didn't break down any barriers. Like Venus had to step onto that court, all those courts, and deal with the ramifications of, like something as fucking dumb as her race. You know what I mean? Richard didn't have to do any of that. And, and, and I think that's the more interesting movie and she's the more interesting character and she gives the better performance. And that's, that's the crux of it. The crux of it is that the way Will Smith decides to do this performance is has an incredibly unsympathetic character. Like, which is, which script, I guess is admirable script, in a the, way. The, you know what script, I mean? But the script... And the direction wants you to. They want oh, you to focus want on him all the, focus the time. Has on him has like a troubled, flawed but sympathetic character. Right. And instead, the way Smith does that performance is just like a real piece of shit who's holding everyone back. Like there's I agree there's with you. there's nothing. Yeah. And this is a uh, this because because and the, the thing that sucks is like I Smith can hit those moments. Like Smith hits that moment when he talks about what happened with his dad. Mm-hmm. Like, that pissed me off because I'm like, Smith, is, he's capable of that, mm-hmm. but he always has to, like, be funny. Oh, I he don't always think has to be... Not funny, but he always has to be, like... Uh, it's, a, it's a Dwayne... Well, Dwayne DeRock Johnson's a bad actor, but Dwayne DeRock Johnson yeah. always has to be charismatic, mm-hmm. right? In this, once again, like, Will Smith has the same problem. Brian Reynolds has the same problem. Brian Reynolds is also a worse actor. They Who? have to be... Ryan Reynolds. Oh, Like, yeah. they have to have charisma, first and foremost. Oh, I watched and, Free Guy, too. That movie is... Just awful. I watched Red Notice. That movie is also bad, but it was fine. <laughs> oh, God. The Red Toast. Notice, the Netflix police are after us. <laughs> we gave one good review, and then we started giving a negative review, yeah, yeah. and they came after us. Like, there's there's too much of this bolsterous charisma early on that just becomes... Well, so I, I would argue that I think part of the problem is that they think that it's going to sell certain scenes... To land a certain way, and they don't. So, like the same. They, they, I think they expect but, you to. I think they expect you to, for you to see it as like a cover to vulnerability. Yes. And or no, no, instead, no, I do. I think yes, so. Sometimes vulnerability, but also sometimes like a tough love scenario. So I'm thinking of the the scene that like I kind of was most aware of. It was the Cinderella scene, and like he's like. We're going to watch Cinderella. And then they put Cinderella on. He's like, what did you learn? And they all give these kind of very intelligent responses. And he's like, that's wrong. We're going to watch it again. And the whole thing I'm thinking as a viewer, and I'm so happy that his wife said it, um, was just fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. Because whatever they think that the Will Smithness is carrying over here is not carrying over. This guy just looks like a fucking ass. Yeah, and then just because you have him say like, "No, this is about being humble," which is like a good thing to be, blah blah, you know, whatever. He's a, such a he's fucking dick all it, yeah. the time, 
and that's it. so it's not coming off as like it's not coming off as a caring but a tough parent. It's coming off as this fucking asshole that everyone is just kind of like. Yeah, I guess, I guess. Like, let's just... And even his wife, who's like... Who comes... Who, who actually does come off as, like, tough inner training. Right, but, but she loving. also... Right, but loving, but she also says, like, my faith demands that, like, I give oh, you... That's, a, that's also such like, a... Oh, oh, fucking, no, like, don't say that. Well, they're... But they're Jehovah's Witnesses, unfortunately. Right, but um, whatever. But, like, that that scene, though, in the backyard where she... Where she... Where, you know, Angelou... Uh, Angelou Ellis... But he still gets what he wants. Yeah, he does, but, like... That's the thing, but that's what's frustrating about this movie. Like Will Smith is the Will Smith, and uh, he's like Ronaldo Marcus Green. I'm assuming is a younger, an inexperienced director. Well, he directed Gods and Monsters, that John oh. David Washington movie, which is okay. Yeah, um, but and he directed Monsters Joe and Bell, Not Monsters, Monsters Men. Yeah, Monsters Men. What's Joe Bell? I'm not even familiar with Joe Bell. That's that new um, Mark Wahlberg movie. Yeah, not familiar with that movie. Um, I didn't see it either, but, but the, it came out last year. The problem is, is like... He's directed it, some movies. It's like Will Smith, like... This is like white Will Smith and Ali works because, like, there's a director who knows what the fuck he wants. Like, dang, like, you're going to do this. Right. Um, and this is why the, the pursuit of happiness doesn't work or, like, this these, like... No, it fucking, doesn't. Um, six pounds or seven pounds or whatever especially does, like, everyone at least noticed that that didn't work. Even the people in it. Yeah, uh, you know Rosario Dawson still goes like, no, Rent. That's my better movie. Uh, Seven pounds. Um, is the fact that like when Will like he feels like he, like he just has this vacuum around him, and the thing that makes it worse is in this film, especially when he has such good actors around him doing such good work, he just looks like a bigger piece of shit. I think so. Like in that backyard scene where she's like, don't. Except my silence has acceptance or whatever. Yep. Like, she just... I'm just like, yeah. Fuck him up. But then he just... But that's the thing. But and then he gets what he wants. Right. He because gets what like he wants. Sto- because, because the original the story script, dictates... The story and all that. It, yeah. Because of the fact that, like, that story was definitely demanding a certain sort of, like, shakiness to it. It was demanding an insecurity with everything he said. Yeah. But every time he said, like, every time Will Smith said those lines, he said it with, like, such a conviction mm-hmm. and such a certainty that I don't think was the intent of the screen. Well, my problem, too, right? yeah, and I think to that exact point, I think my problem at some point in this movie is that what gets disregarded is the role that everybody else in their, the two girls' lives played in getting them to where they are. So in the movie's mind, the only reason that Serena and Venus are champions is because of what Richard did. Which is bullshit because of like Rick Macy trained them for all those years. But and- I, I don't I don't think that's true. I don't think in the movie's eyes that is true. I think in Will Smith's performance and what cuts through the overall film, that's true. Right. And I think but I that, don't think the screenplay says that. I don't, I don't think... Right. I don't think that's... But, anybody else in that movie does that. But, but I think, here's where we're going to do a thing that we don't usually do, which is like talk about the credits. So after like the first couple of credits... You know, oh, where it says everything, by, everything Richard said came right. through. Produced by Will Smith is like... Produced Will executive, Smith. Executive is like, produced by Jada Pickett Smith. It's like, <laughs> like the second credit. Yeah. Okay. I think you're right, and I, I think that's exact. That's what I to quote Richard Kind in Tick Tick Boom. That's what I meant. We're saying the same thing. We're just saying it in different ways. <laughs> We're just saying it in different ways. I'm thinking of the scene 
where John Bernthal confronts the fam- confronts um, Richard after they go to Disney World. Okay, and John, you know, Venus gets really mad that um, Richard decided to pull her out of the thing, out of the tournament. Um, John Bernthal, you know, Rick Basie kind of says some very relevant and correct things to him. It leads to that conversation in the kitchen. But when that scene ends, Richard has won that scene. It doesn't even matter how correct everything, like, John Bernthal said was. Doesn't Richard is like the sun, and everybody else is just kind of floating, or floating around him. And there's no sense from the direction or from the way that the movie functions. And I think there's just... there's. I kind of like this movie. I think this is a really interesting week for us where I don't like have like I don't I don't hate I don't hate King Richard. No, I no I agree. I, it makes me angry because the, there's there's a significantly good sports biopic right. in here that's ruined. The score fucking stinks. I hate yeah, it. No, and they used it so, they so use it too much whatever. Um but I think I'm interested to see your opinion on something from the next movie then. Yeah, there's a little bit of well, we'll we'll get there. It's very complicated. <laughs> my feelings about the next movie, I think, are very complicated. Much more complicated than this movie, even though I think my feelings about this movie are very complicated as well. Um, Richard wins. I think the problem is that... Randall Grand is shaking, like, pumping his fist. He he's should. Our, he's one of our 17 listeners going like, he did me. a good job. <laughs> I mean, that's... And that's... I think that's the odd... A little bit of the odd thing about Tick, Tick, Boom is that it feels... It feels good. It's a movie I'll, it I'll re- it's a movie I've got to rewatch. Right, and I told you we I watched the first hour twice in two hours in a row. I watched the first hour and I was like, just better in the second that's hour. That's a really good first. Netflix and chill, guys and ladies. Except that's, that's for except for the Bohemia song, which made me want to fucking vomit. It's oh one, my god, it's I one almost, song. I almost died, Mario. I almost died. But so the problem with this movie is that, um, in even when. It wants Richard Williams to win every scene, even if he's wrong. And it's not because narratively Richard Williams wins every argument or narratively Richard Williams is always right. It's because Will Smith, I think, wants to come off or the way that he's playing this character demands that he comes off as the constant winner of everything. Yeah. So a lot of other people in the film, character-wise, get a short shrift because he must always be beating them. And so I think the problem with that kitchen scene is that he come, he's winning the kitchen scene narratively until he's not. And that's a big fucking problem. Okay? That's a big problem. That movie needs to, that scene, he needs to be being cut down every step, every step, every yeah. step, every step. And that's why he's best- not. He's only cut down at that one moment. And even then, he gets to win because he gets to be the one that says during the Nike conversation, well, you better ask Venus. It's like, no, 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 yeah. no. You got nothing to do with any of this. And that's why the best That's why the best part of this movie is the second he says, ask Venus, and it becomes Venus's movie. When, which we all knew the whole time that it was Venus's movie. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's, it's, it's, I think that's why this movie's so, this movie, so where Tick, Tick, Boom feels very satisfying and good, this movie feels really weird. It's a blue balls. <laughs> and the, I mean, and no, because because I, I say that because it's like it's a really interesting story. It's because of the fact of the two women at the center of it who are the most two of the most interesting Americans in the last like thirty years. Yeah, like I still 
want to know. I still want to see a movie about the romance between uh, Omerman or whatever. Like the Reddit nerd co-founder and Serena Williams. I want to see how that. But happens. can I say one I more? I want to see a movie right. how that happens. Can I say but one? Like, right. Yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I just want to say the, the last thing that I want to say about this movie um, from my end, and feel free to say whatever you want. The thing that I hate most about this movie is a thing that I hate most about like most biopics, which is that people have conversations, knowing conversations about the future. Like Richard Williams saying to Serena, like when she's looking out of that tennis stadium, like I designed this whole thing. Cause you're going to be the best ever. It's like, fuck you, man. Fuck you. It's like we know what happens. Yes. She's the best ever. Like you shouldn't know that she's 10. Like what the fuck? Yeah, who what knows? are we idiots? Who like, knows? do we not know? Like, is anyone watching this movie who doesn't know who Venus and Serena Williams are? Yeah, and like, like I said, my big problem with this ultimately is the fact that I think the overall narrative tone is ruined by Will Smith, and it just, it blows my fucking mind that Will Smith is like, like we're looking at this going like this is his best performance. He's going to win the Oscar this year. Well, so one of the podcasts I listened to a podcast about this today, and they said one of the things that they're those two people who are kind of obsessed with Will Smith um, are worried about is that like this movie has peaked already, and that there will be this kind of like because Will Smith is not it's not a classic Oscar. I mean, in even though it is a classic Oscar performance, because fucking Rami Malek won an Oscar for. <laughs> Rhapsody. So maybe it is, is that he's peaked too early and that it's just going to kind of end up being like other people will kind of surpass him as the months, as the months go by. I tend to think that... re-release nine days in theaters and Winston Duke will pop up. You just, you said it. So now it's like I'm replaying the whole movie in my mind. (laughs) Um, No, I think, I mean, I haven't seen, I haven't seen Cyrano. I haven't seen... You know, uh, Power of the Dog yet. I Tragedy haven't of seen Macbeth. Tragedy of Macbeth. I haven't seen Don't Look Up. I mean, those are the six guys right there that are kind of being like set aside as like the contenders. Oh, and B- Bardem. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. For being Ricardo's. Which I, I, has, I, has, I, have people seen Simon Rex yet? Have people seen Red Rock? No. Rocket? And that's like a, that's like a, if we wanted to, I mean, it's, We've been doing this for a while. We wanted to do a separate like bonus podcast about like just being angry about like why they're not releasing stuff on streaming. Um, the idea souvenir that, part two a twenty four. The idea that I souvenir need, part two. The idea that I need to see Red Rocket in the theaters makes me want to fucking vomit. I'm excited to see it. I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. Period. But there's no fucking way. Excuse my anger. That it's going to be beneficial to me to see it in a theater with two people than there is to me seeing it home. There's nothing oh, Sean yeah, Baker's yeah. going to do in that movie that makes seeing hey, it in theaters a iPhone. requirement. Okay? Okay? That's all I'm saying. Um, or, or the big thing. Like movies we want to see. Movies you and I would willingly probably separately spend $20 each to see. Yeah. Souvenir Part 2. And A24 will release... A24. They'll send me an email. I will, I will They'll give send you. me an email. They'll say, we open the screening room. We're going to show it one... They'll do like Minari. We'll show it once for $20. Okay. That's blah, fine. Blah, 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 That's blah. fine. I will pay it. But it'll, they'll only release a certain number of tickets for a digital screening. And then we'll all miss it because like all these other people bought it. So then, like, then release your fucking movie wide. Yeah, release. Yeah, you can't release Souvenir Part Two on like twenty, like uh, what, twenty 
probably 20 theater or however many was. Listen, we definitely s- didn't get any. It got um, it got one showing at uh, Jacob Burns. Yeah. One showing at Jacob Burns. Like a very exclusive I showing. fucking should have went to that showing. Should have. I but didn't. But what happened? But why why what, did I have to drive 45 what miles happened to see a movie that could easily be on streaming? And what happened in Souvenir 1 that required a theatrical screening? I did a, I watched some I, of, I watched Souvenir Part 1 on this baby. My laptop. There you go. Absolutely. And it was just it was one of my top movies of the year. Um what were we even talking about? Oh, Rich we're, we're, uh, we're transitioning to uh Yeah, but we're talking we were talking about um Will Smith. He's not mine. I think the problem for us in terms of making our best of list um, is that like we're including a couple of movies that were eligible for Oscars last year that won Oscars last year, but that didn't come in. That came out so late in 2021 that we're including them on. Yeah, because we had a uh, January 14th cutoff date. Right, and so like, it's like the, Minari, father, Minari, the father, Minari, Judas and the Black Messiah are all eligible for us. Nomadland's eligible for awards. For Absolutely. Me. Um, it's going to get some. Nothing that Will Smith did. He's not cracking my long list. You know what I mean? I forgot the father's eligible on my list. I know. Not really. Andrew Garfield might not be in top five anymore. I like him. I, I thought he was I like good. Him. I thought there yeah. was just, there's there's an awkwardness. There's like a staginess where like the performances got, his performance of a performance and then his performance got kind of confused for me. And I wondered if they got a little bit confused. Yeah, I, I just forgot for that Judah and the Black Messiah and the Father are, are this year for us. So, um, yeah. yeah. But um, I, think that's, I think that's a good segue into... Um, this whole I actually think this whole conversation is a good segue. I know. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, a good conversation segue into our next film, um, which we both went to see in theaters. I think, interestingly, um, the distribution company... Who distributed this movie? It's this Focus film. Focus, okay, so Focus uh, features, features made officially... Um, I paid 11 How much did you pay? Uh, I paid eight ninety nine because I used my Cinemark Movie Pass. There you movie go, eight ninety nine. So nineteen ninety nine plus the one other person that was in the theater with me. Ooh, that's unfortunate. So it made less than thirty dollars from us at Criterion in New Haven uh, uh, and, and Cinemark in North Haven. Oh, me. or so regardless. So it made less than thirty dollars in its last two showings over the last, or it's over the, like. Two showings over two days. Over twelve it hours, it made thirty dollars in the state of Connecticut. In the definitely state of, in Southern Connecticut. You and me would have rented this probably separately because we like are good at communicating, but sometimes we're not good at communicating because I mean, I we watch rent, movies at a different time. I had to rent Titian separately. So <laughs> what? Uh, Titian. Ty, uh, uh, oh, uh, you did? I had to rent it separately because I I didn't get to it. Oh, okay. Um. Exactly. We would have given you more money between the two of us to rent this movie. On streaming than you got from it being in two theaters. And we both have appropriate size TVs slash projectors that nothing would have been lost. Um, I don't think. And that movie is... And this is not like the crux of the movie or anything like that. It's just like we're just angry that we had to like go out and see this independent film that like nobody is seeing. So release it in, on streaming. Um, it is Kenneth Branagh's Best Picture Oscar Hopeful... Belfast. We all have a story to tell. But what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins. 
Holy God. Mama says if we went across the water, they wouldn't understand the way we talk. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. to cleanse the community away, but you wouldn't want to be the old man out in the street. Touch my family and I'll kill you. Are we going to have to leave Belfast? We'll fight this together. This is it. This is what? This is war. We're living in a civil war. What do you want? I want my family with me. I want you. Kids the same age as ours are getting killed. We can give these boys a better chance than we ever had. I know nothing else but Belfast. Go now. Don't look back. So it's August, right? August, August 1969. Um, the troubles in, in, in Northern Ireland have just started. Uh, Protestants are trying to purge Catholics from their neighborhood. And we are um, have access to this these events through Buddy, who is... Uh, Proxy for Kenneth Branagh. Yep. Um, did I mention... I said Kenneth Branagh, yeah. yeah. So this is kind of his, his version of Roma, where he's kind of... Um, giving us a memory of his of his childhood, as just like Alfonso Cuarón did in, Except in Roma. Except in only ninety minutes. Except in only ninety minutes, yeah. Um, a little less artfully too, I guess, um, in a lot of ways, but also I guess more focused in in some ways. It's complicated. I have complicated feelings about this movie. Um, Buddy has a crush on a girl. Uh, Buddy's dad, played by Jamie Dornan, um, is. Uh, working in London, he's, he's a joiner. joiner. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he's you know. Which I had to look up while watching. Right. It's like what's a joiner? I did too because there was no one in my theater, so I didn't give a shit. Um, you had one person, you said. But they were. I always sit in the back. Oh, okay. Because I need to. Uh, so because I go during like when the kids are at school. If like somebody calls, I want to make be able to make a quick exit. I don't want to have to like negotiate. Yeah. So so chairs. I guess I guess the nice thing to say about this movie, look, we mentioned briefly, is I saw this in a, a theater by myself. Yeah. So I was actually talking at the screen just because I could and eating pop. I got popcorn. It's probably good, yeah. Sounds Don't nice. ever get popcorn for movies and a Coke. So the A big popcorn? Uh, medium. Oh. Okay. Which is still it's a big, it's an big enormous popcorn. fucking popcorn. I expect like a small bag of popcorn, but it was huge. Yeah. But I was like watching, I was like paid it my full focus, but they said joiner, and I like I was like, I'm in the theater. I don't know what that means. So I pulled out my phone and I was like, jo- oh. Got it, got it. Um so he's being raised mostly by his mother, um, played by Katrina Balfe. Um, his grandparents are also around, played by Judy Dench and Siren Hines, who we last saw in the Snyder Cut as Steppenwolf. It's a big Siren Hines year. Yeah. <laughs> um, when did we last see Judy Dench? I don't know. I I I liked her in this. Um, oh, yeah. And then she moved. Hot, hot take. Hot hot take. Judy Dench is good. Um, 
in especially in this movie. So the crux of this movie ultimately becomes um, Jamie Dornan wants to move the family to London because the kids are kind of too close. So they're actually Protestants living in a Catholic neighborhood. Um, and so the Protestant douchebag who's kind of running the neighborhood Billy Clayton demands that Jamie Dornan kind of either pay him or like join their cause or whatever. Um, and the kids, so uh, Buddy's brother Will is like running messages for them kind of does, kind of against his will. Um, there's two scenes of, of, of rioting, two scenes of violence that bookend this movie. Um, I guess in a way, I guess the movie is officially bookended by these color scenes of modern Ireland, um, which I thought was weird because he uses color in the middle of the movie when they're watching the movies yeah, and watching, watching the play. Um, which was a, done by somebody else. And I can't remember who it was. But it, it's really reminiscent of Roma, too. Like, Oh, my God. Bombasticness like, of those film sequences. And I tried to not think of that when I was watching this, except for the fact that like some of this is very... Some of this is Kenneth Branagh's attempt. He clearly saw Roma and was like, ah, I'd like to do that. And then he tried to do that. And um, it has we'll, mixed we'll get, results. We'll get to that. Um, ultimately, ending with, spoiler alert, the family leaving Belfast um, for London. where <laughs> And one of the saddest closing shots of a mm-hmm. movie this year. Yeah, where Jamie Dor- so Jamie Dornan has his job um you know, as a joiner, but they're going to they're going to give him a promotion, they're going to give him a house. He's going to join management. Right. Um So um yeah, that's how, I mean there's not like a ton my phone is buzzing. There's not like a there's not like a ton of subtext I guess here. There is a little bit, but like and we'll talk about it. Um, and, and, and kind of how I responded to this movie. Um, I liked it. And this is, so this is like, if we had to, if this was like a, a, a proper episode of this podcast and I had to title it, I might have titled this episode. Like I liked it because I think both of us for both of these movies kind of feel like, you know, we like tick, tick, boom a lot. Um, not the best movie ever, but we liked it a lot. King Richard had, it has major flaws, but like we liked it. I think this movie, the first Once half... again, I don't like King Richard. I, I dislike King Richard because it's a really good movie just, with a 40-minute beginning that stinks right. and a performance that... But it's like... But like ultimately, no, if you were... if Will Smith, for some reason, ever listens to this episode, I don't like that movie because of you. Mm. All of its Everyone prob- else, you did great. All of its problems are related to Will Smith things. Yeah. And it's first 40 minutes. I like... I like this movie. I think its first 30 minutes for a fairly short movie are 30, 40 minutes are very unfocused. Um, I think this entire movie is unfocused. Where it's tr- well, so when it deals solely with the idea of moving to London, when that becomes the crux of the movie, um, whether or not they're going to go. But it still gets distracted. Oh, it gets totally distracted, but it, it, it's, but we know what its narrative focus is. For the first half hour of this movie, we have no idea what its narrative focus is. It jumps all over the place because it doesn't use any kind of expositional um, devices. Well, and I'll it's say, really I'll kind say, of hard to tell what I the like hell it. is happening. I'll say why I like that. Um, yeah, and I'll just because I'm going to wrap it up right here. Yeah. Um, but once it gets past trying to like not try to trick us, but trying to kind of like cloak everything that's happening in like 
a, a, a scrim of like art, of being like an art house movie, of being Roma. Um, and I could talk a little bit about that after. Um, when it just kind of gets down to the heart of what it wants to be about, um, which is like where you're, what it means to be from a place when that place is changing faster than like, and quicker than, than you're changing, then you can deal with it. I think it's a really affecting, I think it's a really affecting piece of work. I think from the moment that like Katrina Balfe's character is talking to that other woman while they're watching um, Jamie Dornan's character and the kids play basketball and they're making all those jokes about Ireland from that moment on, it's pretty. It's pretty consistent in what its message is. It's pretty consistent in what its narrative is, um, and I think it's a. I think it's a good, solid piece of filmmaking because if you noticed, um, Kenneth Branagh, like you also stopped doing, like super dramatic black and white shots that have no, or except for the one, except for the funeral scene that have no meaning whatsoever. Um, but I like I, again. I I guess I I guess I I liked it. it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. I I liked it. I I liked most of it. So, yeah. Interestingly enough, I I, I agree with that, and I I kind of sat with it for a bit while I was watching it, like wondering. It was it's really unfocused at first, and and I was wondering what struck me, to connect with it in a way because I, I ended up like loving I love this movie oh, okay I, I, I think my it's not my top of the year obviously but mm-hmm. it's definitely straddling I don't I think I prefer tick tick boom still to it okay because I think tick tick mm-hmm. boom's more fun and I am not 60 years old so I don't understand, <laughs> 19, I don't understand 1970 but um the thing I appreciated the thing I think I enjoy, enjoyed about this movie in the end I, I think both the framing network, the, the framing device of using like the color current Belfast and then that framing of like to those we lost, those who stayed, those yeah, who yeah. left. Like I don't think that works because I think it's a little too voicey um, in the sense that like why this movie worked for me is it's narrative disconnection. It's narrative unstructure. Um, it's moments of like colorizing them watching the movies or watching plays and then having this weird focus and not being focused and being all over the place didn't really strike me until um, the sequence in which after um, Kieran Hines' pop has died mm-hmm. and they uh, Jamie Dorn has pa and ma kind of like that that's that dancing scene that mm-hmm. musical scene yep um, in his like wake. Yep. Where it kind of struck me of like, this is a movie told through the lens of a child. Sure. And like that lack of focus and those choice directions to like colorize movies, uh, like that fun chitty chitty bang bang scene is so much fun. Everyone, great. Yeah. Everyone just goofily leans forward. Because, mm-hmm. you know, nineteen nobody was doing that in 1970. Being like, oh, no, movies yeah, are They might crazy. have. You don't know. No, they, this was, what, 70 years after the great train robbery where people actually thought the train was coming at them? I don't know. They, they were not doing this. Um my Maybe. parents are from that era. <laughs> my dad is a little older in Kenneth Branagh. Um, my mom is younger in Kenneth Branagh. My mom and Kenneth Branagh, you know, be a thing. Yeah. Kenneth Branagh can be a stepdad. I didn't take it. Once I accepted it from that lens, though, like, I really appreciated it. Because I think 
we can't we can't not look at this movie and not compare it to Roma. But Roma has so much art and so much so many choices right in it um, that it's it's told through this lens of an adult. Well, it's an adult and, looking and, back at and their so like, childhood. Yeah, and so like when I don't know, I don't think I don't think this was intentional, but like when um, Pop is being buried and he, you know, the the priest who has done the narrow road speech earlier on the sweaty narrow road speech says like when i was a child i put away childish things and i'm like this movie didn't put away childish things mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if that's an intent i hope mm-hmm. i don't know if kenneth brana because he hasn't really shown me much of the fact that he has like subtext in a lot he's of never movies. made this movie before he's never done yeah he's he's made adaptations like he's never made like dead alive dead alive not dead alive um mm-hmm. yeah dead, dead alive. again dead again Whatever. Dead Alive, I think, is the Peter Jackson movie. I think Dead Again, the movie made with Edna Thompson, is the one I'm thinking of. Oh, like, yeah, Dead the, Again. It's the only movie of his where he's made like, an actual movie that isn't very much adapted from something else. So I hope it's intentional. And the fact that like, this feels like a childlike wonder. And that's why it worked for me so well. Is the fact yeah. that it has this wonder to it throughout this like middle <laughs> current. Well, there's, I guess, I'm, I think I agree with you. Except for the fact that I think the first half hour of the movie, it doesn't stop to wonder about anything. It's trying too hard to... <coughs> excuse me. It's trying too hard to kind of um, uh, acknowledge certain influences. So the Araby subplot with the, the girl in the... Um, is it a fucking train? The fuck? There's no train nearby. <laughs> the Araby subplot with the girl um, that he's kind of in... He's in love with, you know, that he wants to kind of sit next to. Um, leads to some leads eventually to some good dialogue with Siren Hines, but at first just kind of confuses is just like another subplot in a story that seems like it's full of subplots. Well, so there's like so the, many stories going on because that's what kids' life is, right? right? And I'm I want to I always want to acknowledge the idea that like we're do like the filmmakers taking kind of meta uh, tact with trying to have the film relate somehow to the way that the uh, protagonist in the film or like the the point of view in the film is perceiving the events in the film. But I don't necessarily think that like it's justification for being like sort of confused. And I think the beginning of this movie seems very confused as to what it wants to what it wants to focus on. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to sh- it needs to shed things. So if you notice, like from a uh, not a minute movie needs to shed things. No, but from the what the point that I made was that like the movie seems to really come into its own when its focus seems to be solely moving to London. So it spends the last 50 minutes of the movie focusing on the idea of this family moving to London. But, and then this kid grappling with it. And then things happen inside of that. But the the narrative thread and the emotional thread is, are we going to move to London? But I think the reason that worked for me is the fact that like a kid's... Like, as a kid, my thoughts were so scrambled until a big event happened. And that big event became the only thing in my head. And then things that circled around that thing. So, like, the girl... The first chair girl, second, third chair girl, whatever. Yeah. I like that. Carolyn? Catherine? Yeah, yeah. Um, Catherine. Catherine? I think, yeah. Um, but she's Catholic. Does yeah. that mean we have to go confession? <laughs> um, but like, you know, yeah. leaving, leaving her was just entirely attached to London. 
But like I accepted that in spades because it has that childlike quality of like there's so many things going oh. on until an important thing happens and that becomes I guess the so. thing. I and see then what, everything revolves around. And I see what you mean. I think the the um and I think that's what I just said. You know, Richard I'll Richard kind it again. We we're saying the same things, but we're just saying it a different way. I just I felt very confused by now something how, I shouldn't have how been. Did Richard Brady say that? Richard Kind? Richard, not, um, who am I thinking of? New Wayne Yorker. Brady? No, New Yorker, not Richard Brady. Richard Brody? Richard Brody. I'm not sure what he gave this movie. <laughs> I should think, I should look at that. Um, now, Richard Armand White, say about it. Armand Wright didn't like it. He <laughs> thought it was like the this year's Jojo Rabbit, which is fucking stupid. I don't see how he got to this movie to be like a lefty manifesto, but he did, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. Obviously, the most lefty movie is Last Night in So Home Alone, Sweet Home Alone. That would be amazing. Just mix those two. If the guy from, the kid from Jojo Rabbit was hitting um, fucking Anna Taylor Joy in the nuts with paint cans and shit, <laughs> lighting her on fire. I don't even know why I'm doing this. Um, yeah, I get it. I get that. And it just didn't, the first half hour of the movie didn't feel good. It felt very scattered. It felt very scattered. It does, and it but it felt- feels like a kid's brain, right? And, I- and which, what works for that too for me, I don't mean to talk over you, is like because I think this attaches to it, and I think this is a big thing to bring up yep. because I think this is going to be a, a big Oscar nomination that happens for this movie. Yeah, that maybe it shouldn't, but like I think it should. What are you talking about, Van Morrison? Oh, they think... did a song for this, and like Van Morrison just underkerning this entire movie has made me go like, yeah. Like I think that sold it for me. Just having like Van Morrison all throughout this. Oh, see, this. I kind of I liked the score. I like the oh, original I did too. score. I hated the amount of Van Morrison. But I liked movie. it because like I'd imagine it's too much. It's just all the time Van Morrison. Kid Me, like if I made a movie with Kid Me, like trying to go like, okay, I gotta do Kid Me, I would put so much Iron Butterfly and Doors in it because that was a big <laughs> part of my childhood. Was Iron Butterfly and the Doors, and like I, I appreciate that because it's like. Who knows what Kenneth Branagh likes now, sort of thing. But like, I think he likes Van Morrison. <laughs> do, you, do you? But like, it, it seems like it was a part. Like that it was music conscious, strikes I mean, so to he be a was, part of his childhood. He was point. on. So here's the thing, though. This is what I'll say. So I'm looking at Van Morrison's discography right now. So we got "Blow in Your Mind." We got "Astral Weeks" as '67 and '68. That's it. So they got two they records. Were, they weren't big yet. Well, Astro Weeks was a big fucking deal at the time, but it none of the songs that we heard in the movie are from Astro Weeks. But could, they're all from could, later records. It could like set the tone. Sure, but what I'm saying is that if you were doing a song that like Van Morrison was a part of our was a part of our existence in 1969, it would have to be to one of these two records, and neither of these are it. So part of my problem with the Van Morrison thing is that it seemed to hedge very closely to like the blues era Van Morrison, and which is like a very commitmentsy thing, which was like really bummed me out of. It's like the one thing that bummed me out about a scene that I kind of really liked, which is the wake scene that you mentioned, which seemed very commitmentsy in its like construction. Like here's a guy gonna he's gonna sing some songs. He's got an old-fashioned mic. We got a horn section in the background. I'm not sure where those people got the horns from. Um, I'm assuming there was an actual band playing at the wake, and these people just jumped on to pantomime playing horns. These characters from the streets just jumped on to pantomime, which is fine. Um, 
But none of the Van Morrison songs that they played were like period appropriate. They're all like newer, like in terms of like the late seventies, eighties Van Morrison yeah. stuff. Um, and I thought the so that's a. I, I, this brings up more conflict for me is that I thought the score was very evocative that he made. There's a sound underneath the saxophone that I thought was really interesting. Um, and it, it kind of, the, the score kind of straddled the line between being like upbeat a little bit and mournful a little bit with, which made it, I think in terms seemed like very elegiac. Um, but it was, it was just, it kind of wanted to be both things. And I think that's one of the things I'm struggling with a little bit with this movie. And I'm not struggling a lot because I like the movie. Is that it seems like it wants to be, it wants to be something. But the thing that it is, is very good. Yeah. And when it's trying to be something else, it seems less good. Well, I wonder, like, there's there's some weird, like, Easter eggs or whatever he throws into it that are supposed to be, like, invocative of his identity. Like, we get some mention of Shakespeare early on, but then yep. we have those two really particular shots where you see Halloween Party by Agatha Christie. Yep. Leading into him doing murder, like, Kenneth Branagh directing murder on the sure. Express and Death of the Nile. And, the Thor and then also him reading Thor. Yeah. And I'm like, when, you know, he'd go on to direct the first Thor movie. Which is awful. <laughs> it is. Um, it's not Dark World awful, but... I love it. I think the Dark World is a hundred times... I think Thor, the first Thor movie, is the worst Marvel movie. I think both of them are like one and two worst. No, Dark World is in, in the middle. It's underrated. Christopher Ellickson can't do anything. Oh, it's ho- well. it's horrible, but it's also like... It's the first weird. We're one. going down a rabbit yeah. hole now, but I think the it first, is the first Thor weird. Is awful. It's the first yeah. weird one trying to do stuff. The first Thor that. seems like it was made on two Hollywood sets. Regardless oh, of yeah. the fact that he made them in New Mexico, he built like five buildings, and he was just like, "No, it's a town, and we're all just in the town all the time for no reason." I almost made a cancel me joke, and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will tell you that joke to you afterwards. Okay. Um, yeah, so I wonder like how much of it he looked at and was like, I have to like say how much this inspired me, and like that's where like there's, which is cool. I but I imagine like Kenneth Branagh like vomiting himself over this movie because Kenneth Branagh has like the tendency to do that. He's very he likes this movie. Yeah. Like I was, I'm surprised that this movie's not over two hours. Like, yeah, it felt, shocked the shit out of me. It felt very. This is like the tightest movie. It's very of the tight. Yeah. Life. Um, and it was in because uh, I watched King Richard today. So we're recording this on Tuesday. I watched King Richard in the morning, and I went to the movies to see this later in the day. Um, yeah, I watched. I watched all three movies since Saturday. Me too. Yeah, there you go. I watched. I them, actually, I, I, I watched them in the, the most, last three days. I had the most fun with Tick Tick Boom. Me too. Me. <laughs> I wasn't, but I had the most fun with Tick Tick Boom. Um, but if you were, it's better. But I think this movie is. I'm appreciative of its tightness, and I think. Again, and I'll go back to it, is that my the first forty minutes of this movie seem untight and then it emotionally and narratively tightens up in the last but it, and it earns fifty. It. And it's good. Right. It's moving towards something and then it gets there and then it's and then I think it's a very, very good movie. Absolutely. If it it's a lot I mean, it's slated now. It's like the front runner for best picture, ostensibly. Is it? Yeah. I'd be fine with it. This like, and Power of the Dog, I think, are like the two movies. But I, actually, I want to lean into that. It's so like, yeah, we're getting into the end of the year. Let's talk about like the big, I think, the 
this has to like the big two it's contending for, and I assume it's a big contender for the third one I'm going to talk what about. What the fuck are you talking about? In terms of like it's oh, what not picture director. What's the third one? No, so I'm thinking of supporting actor, supporting actress, and cinematography. It's it's really contender yeah. for cinematography. I guess so, but I think the cinematography is really it's mannered. Too, it's a little too centered. Well, it also makes no sense. So the thing that came kept coming up to me sometimes in this movie was. Um, have you watched any of The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu? No. It's awful. It's Margaret Atwood. But of course the, I haven't watched it. One of the reasons I... I read Orange and Crank. That's enough <laughs> Margaret Atwood. I was like, okay, I'm good. One of the reasons I hate The Handmaid's Tale TV show so much is that they've decided on this like camera aesthetic, which has is rooted in nothing. It has no basis for existing at all. It's not tied to a mood. It's not tied to... has no meaning... You know what I mean? It's not it's not a, um, a symbol for anything. It's not a metaphor for anything. It's just like, this would be cool, right? There's a bunch of shots in this movie that I'm just like, that the cinematography is like, this would be good. Shoot him. Shoot Jamie Dornan just talking to this guy from the from his heels. Yeah, you know what bugs me about this is, is, is how many low shots, like two low shots are in this. Like this camera looks like it's always on the ground. This camera also I mean, looks it, like it's... The, the in, shots are framed great. Like, from an artistic... Like, but looking, like if, movie, or, if, if Criterion chooses to, like, look at this movie and pick a shot, or movie wants to do, like, a, a screenshot when they put this movie onto their thing, like, this is a screenshot movie. Like, there's so many good screenshots from this. But they're, but like inor- from, it's, they're inorganic. It, yeah, absolutely. They like have functionally, no... Functionally, they don't work yes, at all. Yes, exactly. And that's one of the reasons when I would push back. And not that I'm pushing I mean, back a movie I you. don't like, Titan, whatever Titan. the fuck it's called. Titanium. I'm going to call it fucking Titanium because <laughs> I don't speak French. Titanium in French. Like, that movie has, like, all that movie shots. I don't like that movie, but all the movie shots feel really organic. Well, especially, feel the, like especially in the beginning. Especially the first half of the movie. They're frantic. Feel, right. They have energy. And when they don't have energy, like, when it's just trying to quiet down, at the very least, you're it's functional and mm-hmm. it's doing stuff. Like, this movie just feels so mad. Like... For being a movie that I ultimately feels told through the framing of a child, narratively and structurally done that way, and everything's playing off of that, like the shots don't work. No, they seem too mannered. There seems to be too much focus. Yeah, that's like the big thing for me, because like just from the reviews I've read of it, I've been like, oh, like how well, like how well framed, and yeah, it is. Well, but it doesn't. It doesn't mean doesn't anything. Work right. It works against it. Right. Um, now, conversely, talking about Kieran Hines and Judy Dench, they're fucking. Phenomenal. They're fantastic, and yeah. I think even Katrina Balfe is fantastic in this movie. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think all the four. I think Jamie Dornan's like, very good in this movie. Jamie also. Dornan's Jude Hill's great. Who's he, buddy? He's buddy. Yeah, yeah, he's very good. I mean, he, Kenneth Branagh deserves, or whoever casts this movie, again. They should do a casting award. Yeah, in the we've Oscars. talked about this for so many years. This is cast. They should win. I think probably for casting this film. I mean, that fucking like best supporting actress. Looking at right now, I would I would put Judy Dench near the top on my list just for that, just how she just like falls against the window, when that very last shot, like where Jamie Dornan, who I will mention this, some people mention how like. Like, women are too attractive for this role or whatnot. I've come to this conclusion. Jamie Dornan is too attractive for me to take serious in movies. Well, can I just say one thing about the attractiveness of the parents in this movie? They're more attractive than everybody else 
in all of Ireland, apparently. Yeah, but no. Which is weird. No, I appreciate that. So I had a friend. But I think it's, it's. I have a friend. I have a friend who mentioned that to me. It's like, this is a pro. Like, a friend who's big in the movies. No, who's big in the movies. He's like, uh, I, was, uh, I was taking out this movie because they're too attractive. And I was like, I was watching it going, like, yeah, I kind of understand that. But then when I, when they have that sequence where they have that dance number, yeah. I was like, if and, I'm a little kid. And like, it, it, like that's and my it appropriately parents, ends with him just staring at his parents. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, and but like if I'm a kid, like my parents are the center of the world, especially like these two loving parents who deeply yep. care, who want mm-hmm. the best thing for me. So framing them as like two very attractive people, yep, makes the most sense in the world. Absolutely, I I it's it and I agree with you. I'm just gonna of, say this really quickly. Yeah, Jamie Dornan is too attractive for me to take seriously. I can't I can't do it. Every time um, I see him, I'm just like, I'm, I, I'm distracted by this guy. I have a... So, I've read a lot of Irish... I took an Irish... I took a lot of Irish literature I had the same problem with uh, his, his show, The Fall. I watched The Fall. I was just like, this, this guy's not a serial killer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, he's not a yeah, serial killer. Um, this guy... No, no. I've read a lot of Irish literature. the weird part of the podcast where Mario just talks about how much he wants to bang Jamie Dornan. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um... Yeah, again, this is a, this is a twist podcast. This yeah. is a, this is a, a, a watershed moment in the podcast. Nothing's going to be the same after this. Um, I took a lot, of Irish, a lot of Irish literature classes in college because um, it's just what they had to offer, and like I love the professor very much. Um, and one of the things that I kind of put in play when I was watching this movie is that someone of his someone of his attractiveness, okay, would have a certain stature in town. And would not so regardless of what the unemployment rate was in Ireland, would not have a problem being employed. So his employment problems in Ireland that would make him need to go to England to work would be directly related, I think, to his gambling debts and tax debts. Yeah. Right? So like he would be unemployable because or he would not want to work for an Irish company because they would just be they would know that his he has money all would these... just it, also his money would just instantly go to the government. Exactly. Which I guess actually his money would go to the government even working in England because it's just part of the you know, I guess know. depending on what the nature of the company was yeah, maybe I know, whatever. I don't, I don't really know also the political structure. Does of... England really care about Irish tax debt like North well, North well cuz North Northern Ireland, Ireland is, is yeah yeah, yeah. Kingdom, but like who but knows they... how segmented right. it was. Um, when Keenan comes back, I'll ask him, even though he's from Ireland proper. But, yeah. but even... Oh, could, shit. Um, the Republic of Ireland, not Northern... I, that's something I possibly could... Well, so actually I could talk about that a little bit. Because we know what part, I'm yeah, about. Yeah, we know what we're talking about. But I think the same thing is true about Katrina Balfe. Katrina Balfe's character would be able to work somewhere. Whether or not she wanted to or not, someone would employ her. Because she is the single most attractive human living in that area, so and grounded, and grounded, and and good at math, and and pays her family's bills, so she would be able to work as an accountant or some, or not an accountant, but like do the books at some shop or whatever. Um, it's not a big problem. It's actually not a problem at all. It's I not a problem. I, I think it work. it's a, it's a, it's, it's a stylistic choice. I think, but I think if. I think one of the things that Kenneth Branagh doesn't understand, I actually think that's a really good way to put it, gold star, is that if you're going to make one stylistic choice, if you're going to make a stylistic choice for one reason, it has to filter into all the reasons, I think. 
So you can't cast these really attractive people to play your parents with the idea that you're looking at them with like, you know, childhood eyes and you're, you know, seeing them as really attractive and blah, 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 without that having some kind of resonance narratively. Um, because up until a certain point, they seem like really downtrodden people. And like neither of these people seem particularly downtrodden. They seem like no. people that are having like real problems. And neither of these people seem like they're having but this, real problems. Okay, so this is actually, you made me think about this. So, but I think this is why this is. It's, a not, good it's, movie. Not, it's not. It's not a real. So they're not having real. Pro- they're having. They have problems, but like, they're. Let's let's say from throughout uh, escaping the filter of a child, they're probably like regular people having regular problems to deal with. Mm-hmm. Just like the grandparents are regularly intelligent parents, grandparents, wise and whatnot, dealing with the things. But let's let's look at the choices mm-hmm. that Kenneth Braun did here. Like through my declaration of this being told through a child's eyes. So we get Jamie Dornan, we get uh, uh, Katrina Balfe, like two very attractive people, like them being the focus and whatnot mm-hmm. um, of that, like mm-hmm. distractingly so. Yep. Like, I didn't think, that, I didn't feel distracted by it. It was but, just But it present. just like is a yeah. thing. And then the grandparents who are supposed to be wise, we get Kieran Hines, who's an extremely well-respected actor. Who's fucking amazing. In this and we get Judy Dench, who's clearly an extremely well-respected act- mm-hmm. actor. Playing the wise grandparents, mm-hmm. like I think, all like I feel there's an intentionality through this casting mm-hmm. to cast like Kieran Hines and Judy Dench as your grandparents who are supposed to be wise, like casting like, you know, Kieran Hines, Jeremy Irons, like in that same level of performer sort of thing. Like, oh, I would have actually really liked to have seen Jeremy Irons in this. <laughs> well, he just. You went to a Jeremy Irons thing. Like, Kieran Hines can melt into a role. Jeremy Irons would have been like, I gotta do something. Yeah, but Jeremy Irons would have just... He would have already won this Oscar. Oh, for sure. Like, they, because he's already got the one. The, he's got the one, like... Mis- Kieran Hines doesn't have one, does he? No, absolutely. Of course not. But he's... I think he's on the sh- very short list think, for this I one. I think this is a gotta year for him. I think he gets it. Oh, I'm I I I'm not sure. I think they thought that with Richard Jenkins, but he keeps like falling for the humans. Probably because what? Not for this year. Yeah. Humans. Mm-hmm. What's that? It's an adaptation of a play. Mm. Because I think it's an A twenty four film. Right, Kieran and Hines. Are... Kieran Hines is 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 in the front row right now, and Jared Leto's the second in line, and that's not going to happen. No, that's not. Gonna and then happen. Jamie Dornan's third, and if Jamie Dornan somehow won the Oscar, Jamie Dornan would literally just be like, "No, I did not." Then J.K. Simmons for being the Ricardos. Yeah, who is who is he in that movie? I, I don't know. And then Robin DeJesus. I didn't realize he was in the. He's a he's in the top. That's I don't know. Good for him. But I think this is Kieran Hines' year. Oh, it's an A twenty. Yeah, The Humans is an A twenty four movie, and A twenty four we have learned has not figured out how to fucking distribute a movie during the pandemic, <laughs> just like Neon. But <sighs> well, at least Neon just is like you know what, fuck it. Here's but but what I'm just saying is I think there's a lot of this is a weird movie for me. I love this movie. I really appreciate this movie because I think it's told through a child's eyes. And I think a lot of casting decisions and a lot of the decisions of the way to film it and the film, um, it's narrative stripes work, but it still has that kind of like Brana over direction to it. That. Oh yeah. Was bothersome. But in a weird way, in the sense of 
I expected Kenneth Branagh to over-direct in the sense that he'd have to over-explain himself. But instead he just over-directed in the sense of where he just wanted to show you quick images of something to relate it to future Kenneth Branagh. Where it's just like, we don't care about that. Like, we care... Like, this movie's ultimately about the Troubles and about a person's struggles during the Troubles. That's not Kenneth Branagh's story. No, but I liked the... And I, th- I think that's interesting because I liked the idea that... Um, there are really a lot of Troubles movies. No, but I, I guess I like the idea. And, and you're right. And I knew it, like, when watching the movie that, like, this is told through a child's eyes because, like, the Troubles were much more convoluted and, 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 and yeah. constant than just the two events that we have and then this one guy harassing his dad, right? And the Troubles is bigger than you're a Catholic. Absolutely. I mean, it deals with the entire... Well, I mean, it's geopolitical, not... Geopolitical... Not geopolitical. It's not, it deals but with it, the entire political structure of the United Kingdom. But it's not... It's not, but it is. But it's also not. And But that's why it's a child... It's a movie told through a child's eyes um, in the sense that he doesn't recognize any of that. It just comes down to Protestant and Catholic and how do you tell the difference... And what if I like a Protestant? Or what if I like a Catholic? And like, what if we feel this way about each other? And like, it's all very innocent to a certain extent. Um, I just think that. So I think that's very correct. I still think that you can tell a cohesive and coherent narrative story through a child's eyes by focusing on. Limiting the nature of your focus so from I think, the start. I think the idea that what you just said about like kind of him wanting to throw these Kenneth Branagh Easter eggs in there, I think is a really good um, summation of like one of its problems that he keeps wanting to throw these ideas into the movie, which don't necessarily have to be there. So bookending it with this very visceral and that the kid that plays Buddy sells it so well. Um, of the troubles, kind of like just just outside his door, um, in the beginning and in the end, ways like kind of in that supermarket, not supermarket, sure. but in the market is kind of like is this. very smart and very good. But then, kind of trying to and Jude Hill does a great job of oh, fantastic, and then threat. I mean, I was legitimately scared for it. Threading the needle though, between not just the troubles, but like this kid, like being attracted and I'm using air quotes to this other girl in his school to his grandfather's sickness to his father's employment status status slash um, tax status slash gambler status um, is is a lot for is a lot for a, a director who has primarily worked in adaptations so has had this these narrative kind of um, through lines, I guess so, kind of worked out for him already, yeah. so he doesn't have to figure them out. I thought it was uh, my only flaw in this movie. I guess is the uh, it seemed weird to see him try to work it out in the first half hour of the movie, and then find it, and then the movie goes. And I guess that's especially when he was trying to like adapt Roma, right? And you can, right? And you can ra- and you can, and I'm not saying that you're rationalizing it in a bad way. You can justify it in. The sense that it's like through a little kid, but it also just feels narrative. It feels too narratively loose in the beginning, for it. Like, and I don't know if the the you need the robbing the candy store. Yeah, like no, you know what feels... I mean. Because that doesn't really because especially because the police come, um, 
Nothing happens with that. You but know what I mean? Lead, it does lead to the second of the great like chase scenes. <laughs> right, yeah. He's trying to beat him. Absolutely. But it's also like, but it's just not narratively it's important. It's not necessary. Because no. he's going to have a theft scene later in the movie, but when he go, when like they're looting the thing. But Kenneth Branagh doesn't make a point of tying that directly mm. to the first one, except for the fact that Moira, his cousin, is involved in both. But Moira could be involved in both without being involved in both. You know what I mean? Uh, without without Buddy being involved in both things. It's just, it's weird. It's a very delicate thread. It's a very delicate needle thread that I'm not sure that Kenneth Branagh nails all the time. Um, but again, I guess to be, to round it out, if this won Best Picture, would you be sad? No. I wouldn't be sad either. I mean, I'm, I'm... I mean, unless, unless like one of these movies coming up blows my mind, but right? If this, but if this movie doesn't win over, I've already had my pizza, mind. I've already had my mind blown already this year. So. Right. If this movie doesn't, I've already, win, and we fe- know in February we accepted our fates for this Oscar year. And I knew that exactly. And I knew that like what is gonna. Ha- I knew that the thing that blew my mind was never gonna win Best Picture. But if this movie wins over Licorice Pizza, am I gonna be like crushed? No, because. I, I'm assuming Licorice Pizza is not going to be for everybody. Would this be the first year our Best Pictures line up? Unless House of Gucci really... No, I'm, not, really I'm, does probably, not, I'm probably not even going to watch it. I've never seen those reviews. Well, the, so I came up with The Irishman of Tennis because... Um, this is funny because like last year, like the entire joke was leading up was like, oh, my Best Picture is blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, Portrait Lady on Fire happened. And this yeah. year is just like... Our best picture <laughs> I don't... I mean, I, last year, I guess, I was I was very conflicted about what my best picture was. I felt very resigned to... Uh, uh, I'm thinking of ending things as being my best picture. I didn't, like, love it. I didn't feel passionate about it like Blaze and High Life. Mm. Um, I, think, I think last year, in hindsight, was, like, not, like, the best year ever for movies. Um <laughs> For me, for me, um, for, for one picture for me it was. Right, yeah. but I mean, I just think, in, I'm thinking in the context of like two, three, four, and five for me. Where the first couple of years we did it, I had like this amazing run of of movies that I kind of wanted to credit. Um, and I was very I've, conflicted about like Widows versus... I've wondered this. So I've wondered... Blaze. As we've done this podcast that, you know, 20 people listen to, we watch a shit ton of movies. Where we started this thing... We watched a good number, but we don't watch all of them. Has the amount of movies we've watched desensitized us to, like, being amazed? Do you think? I don't think so. No, I think it's... But I think watching the amount But I think to be impressed by something, it takes a bigger thing. I think the interesting thing about this podcast, Mario, is that, like, we've both grown a little bit in a lot of ways over the course of doing this podcast. And I also think that we've watched probably more movies more consistently than we had in previous years. So we're like the narrative of the year seems to kind of, and I think this is one of the things that doesn't get talked about on a lot of these movie podcasts because I think they avoid it. The narrative of the, the, of the year is fairly clear and changes depending on. So we talk about it a lot in terms of like, this isn't in my top five. This isn't like beating this or whatever. Um, the narrative changes from movie to movie in a lot of ways. And like you go in with certain expectations and like where something may or may not fall. Like we talked about at the beginning of the year with like our most anticipated movies. Um, 
you know, a performance that, you know, you really like, you know, becomes less meaningful as time goes on. So, like, I really liked, I didn't think Pig was a good movie. That was a mediocre movie. Pig? Okay. I thought Pig was a mediocre movie with a great performance in the middle of it. The more movies I see, I'm, you know, I'm happy for Nicolas Cage that he got a lot of buzz, like, when Pig came out, but, like... It's, he's yeah. not doing Andrew Garfield work here. And Andrew Garfield might not even make my top five. But, like, he's just not giving as much, regardless of what he's, he is giving. He's not giving as much as whatever Andrew Garfield is giving in. Yeah. And Tick, Tick, Boom. And Tick, Tick, Boom was a musical. It's a, it's a, a pop musical. It's directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. But it's just, it's just not getting there. Or even, or even, like, smaller roles that won't get recognized. Like, what Dev Patel's doing in those quiet moments in... Like when he's on the ground in Green Knight. Mm. And but like I also think that we Green Knight is a movie that I forget about, and then when I think about it, I kind of do what I did with Nine Days, and I just kind of like process the whole movie in like a sitting. Yeah, Green Knight has not left my mind. And it's it's because I think, and this is where I think uh, uh, where Belfast fails, which it doesn't have to, but I think it does because I don't think Roma fails in this way. Is that Green Knight is a sensual experience. I can get to Green Knight through a bunch of different means. Colors, sounds, textures, okay? Roma, I can get to a lot of... I saw Roma once. I can get to Roma a lot of different ways. I and it shows... To, I mean, there's moments you can get to. Right. I think. But, I can, but like it shows... Because Quiron knows how to control those moments. Exactly. Textures, sounds, obviously not colors, but depth of but black even, and white. Yeah. You know like what I mean? Even colors... Absolutely. Like, I can get there. I've already kind of this, the the. I mean, time... We just talked. We just literally talked about how Belfast's textures are fake, artificial. Yes, like they they they're not artificial. They're not fake. They're purposeful right. in a sense that does not match the tone of the film. Right. Um, and I think it's it's. I think this is the this is what I'm kind of finding with having done the podcast is that. And, and watching all the movies is that my criteria for what makes a movie like worth thinking about or what I will think about in a movie has changed like considerably. Yeah. Or I've been, I've just become more aware of it. Um, as opposed I mean, to when we started the pod, when we started the podcast and we were making our lists and it was just kind of like, I like this movie. I like this movie. I had an experience it's, it's, watching this movie. I can tie it's it weird, to this. It's weird. It's weird to thing. think about like like movies we talked about like, but texturally, I put some. I put an Ari Aster film above a lot of films. I would rate hot, much more highly above sure. Ari Aster movies. Absolutely, because Ari Aster has a control of an aesthetic and yep. has a control of a depth of feel. I don't think Hereditary is a good movie. I don't think either of his movies are good movies. But there are moments in that that I, like... You could look at a silhouette of the scene and be like, that's that movie. I talk a lot about, in my life, about Tony Collette sawing her head off with a wire. And then the vision of Tony Collette's decapitated body flying into the treehouse mm-hmm. which seemed really badly done but also like correct you know what i mean like it seemed like it was bumping a, it seemed like it was almost like a practical effect like they were trying to like pull this like mannequin body into a treehouse 
Well, um, I, and it was like bumping along, and I, that's shit is that shit's like kind of there. So I mean, a lot of Midsommar as, stuff as, much, as well. As much as like I think Midsommar sucks, like I can't help like think about the centering shot of Jake Renard, Jack Renard, kind of like being sewn in, where I'm just like, oh yeah, like there was a texture to that that I feel. Oh, and see, for me, it's the Hacks and Cloak score, where like I can I can I I'll hear like a, a like a a kind of uh, pitched ripping sound, and I'll always get to like the nature of the Hacks and Cloak score, and then Florence Pugh's face with like a crown of yeah. And there's like, a reason why that fucking on. that fucking dress is like face and center in the Academy Museum right now. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that, okay, that, really? That dress is like yeah. front and center right now because like that. I mean, I think. I don't think he's the best. I think he's a really good director. I think he's a good director. I'm coming around to the fact that I think Ari Aster is a good director in the sense that he is selling himself. Yeah, he's selling a kind of certain aesthetic vision. But I think it's the same thing with like someone like Alex Ross Perry, who I don't think has like a visual aesthetic, but has an emotional aesthetic, which is more complicated, which I appreciate much more. That... I can get to in like Golden Slumbers has like a very specific emotional pitch that I can get to um, when thinking about his movies. I'm going to piss people off this comment. I think Ari Aster has figured out like David Fincher when he directs something is trying to say something. I think Ari Aster when he directs something is trying to like make money. And mm. I think Ari Aster has tapped into like that tone, that tonality of a generation or whatever of being like, this is what people want to see. I don't care. But, it's but con- like I'm doing it because like this is what they want. But the construction of those things is, I think, is well. His movies oh, no, are it's, well it's a, made. No, no, absolutely. But I think it's completely fake. I think it's. I don't right. think there's any emotion behind. it. I think that's true. But I think he's fucking great. It's why what he's. I've come around to the fact that like I hate him as a filmmaker because yeah. I don't think any of it's real. I think all of it's grossly commercial. But he knows what he's doing. It's why when the that the sister daughter whatever in Hereditary when like her head comes off when like you know they get in the car accident and her head yeah. she gets decapitated. It's why when I saw it in theaters, I was like, huh. like, and I wasn't like, oh my god, I was just like, huh, okay, yeah, cool. Her head just popped off. Neat. Because it leads to like a fucking like Reddit shot. Like Ari Aster is a Reddit director. Like, he's the director of his time. But now, how does David David Robert Mitchell, is that his name? Yeah. How does he fit into that? Because I feel he's like... Not, he's, 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 but he's, he's made... He's the, doing his... He's trying to do his own thing. He's trying to... See, he, but here's a thing. So, so is, I think Ari... This is my thing. I think, like... So, I think there's, like, three directors we could look at. We can look at Robert Eggers, we can look at Ari Aster, and we can look at David Robert Mitchell. David Robert Mitchell is like trying to do his own thing and doesn't know what he's doing. He's like the art house guy who's like, I'm just trying to like do my art, man. But like, it's not good enough to necessarily like not good enough of a. Although I think Under the Silver Lake is having like a renaissance now. It is, but I don't. But I think there's still like a lot of mess in there. Like, oh, there needs to be like. It has no emotion that to it, whatever at all. I mean, there is, but it's just covered in nonsense. Right. Obviously, um, it's somebody that needs. Like a producer to tell him how to do. He Roger also Eggers, needs like the myth. He needs like a. Yeah. He needs like a. Uh, and that, that's that's the Robert Eggers thing. Right. Robert Eggers has the myth, but he doesn't. Vi- he visually has it, but he like 
he's so much more focused. He wants you to focus more on what he's saying than what he's showing you. But so I'll he wants say- to show you something, but he really wants you to focus on what he's saying. This is almost a separate podcast because I think we could talk about this for like an hour. Oh, I think sure. the Robert Eggers thing that he benefits from is that he's tied himself inexplicably to great actors. No. So Robert Pattinson and Will... No, no, I, but I, I think just, those actors would want to tie themselves right. to like the narr- like. But I think Edgar can sell like, this is what I believe. In any about. kind of different context, Mario, the lighthouse is terrible. But if you cast Robert Pattinson, who is willing to do anything, and Willem Dafoe, who is... Willem Dafoe just looks at... Like, who like, invented the idea of being willing to do anything, and you and, cast but also, them But as, also, like, Roger Edgar is probably... Like, Robert Edgar's probably said, like, this is what I'm trying to do, and... Like, Pattinson, I can imagine going, like, okay, I'll work with that. And Defoe going, like, yep, I got it. <laughs> no. Uh, Robert Eggers thinking, like, this is what I'm thinking about. And Robert Pattinson being, like, what can I have sex with? And and Willem Defoe being, like, I'm going to scream a lot. And him being, like, oh, okay, sure, scream but, all you want. No, but I think both of those actors are, like, because, like, you look at, like, Pattinson doing, I mean, I fucking hate, um... Both um, the safety films, the safety uncut gems and good times. Good times. I, I hate good times. Um, but like, Pattinson knows how to tap into the energy of what's going on. Right. And Defoe, he's a genius. Defoe just knows he is the energy of Defoe. what's going on. I mean, <laughs> Defoe starred in. Um, oh my god, I'm losing so many tracks as I'm going. So bad lieutenant director. This is where you. Oh, Paul Schrader. No, that's that bad lieutenant as um did porn first. Do it. Your computer works now. Yeah. Oh my god, what the fuck is his name? Abel Ferreira. Wasn't that connection Abel Ferreira? Oh, that's Abel Fer- with William Defoe. Abel Ferreira did do a bunch of William Defoe movies. Yeah, but what movie was that? Tommaso? Siberia? Tommaso. What was it? No, what movie was I thinking of? No, that's it. That's not the movie I want to talk about. But I, it is the movie I, I do want love to talk Tomasa, about. Though. It's not the movie. Well, I do love some Tomasa. What? Uh, you you're gonna cut all. Lot no, I'm not gonna, gonna cut a lot out. Damn it, Mario! No, <laughs> go what? But um, no. So like like in my scatterbrained thoughts, I was thinking of William Dafoe and Abel Ferreira, um, and four 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 last day on Earth. Oh, okay. You remember that one? No, I don't. I never saw but that. Like it, that movie's just like a fucking Abel Ferrer mess because Abel Ferrer. Uh, you You're know, not excited for zeros and zeros and ones. He's inconsistent in his direction, but like Defoe meets his energy completely. Sure, in yeah, that yeah. Movie. Um, well, I think it's the same. And that's thing. a Defoe thing. Like Defoe just knows how to meet the energy, and that's what works about Robert Eggers is the fact that like he is an idea guy. You meet the energy. Ari Aster. Is it like a nothing bird? Like, look at those movies. Look at Hereditary. Look at Midsommar. There's nothing going on in those movies except visuals. Yes, yes. But like, he has such a control over his visuals. Yep. Like, I'm sure he just been like Florence Pugh. There's like a smile at the end of this. It'll be good. But her- I, mean, I, I can only assume he's the easiest director to work for because he's just like, listen, whatever you do, I do not give a shit about. But like, you need to do this. Because, like, this is what has to happen so that I 
eventually make hundreds of millions of dollars. Well, I just think it's, it's he employs, he's just like another, he's a, a director who knows what he wants. He's represented in the this, actors. I'm going to say, this will get me canceled. He's the Tony Scott of the 2020s. I think it's fair. I think it's fair. They're just making a different genre of movie. Yeah. yeah. But Tony Scott like had absolute control over the visuals. Yep. And was a great director. Mm-hmm. But it was not doing anything. Well, I think the complicated thing about the Ari Aster experience is that like both all both of his movies feel like they're really significant, but you also can't point to a significant thing that happened narratively that makes what's, them what's significant. significant. What's right, significant exactly. Narratively, so they're very visually absolutely, but they're very empty. So when you walk out of those movies, you're just like, well, that was a not really the experience I wanted. Midsommar was better at it than. Hereditary, as but far as I'm all, concerned. But it's all visuals. But it's all visuals, right. And the visuals sometimes have, because they have no emotional weight to them. So, like, the thing that everyone talks about with Midsommar now is, like, the opening sequence with, like, the that girl or, gassing her parents. Or her, or, you know, um, I forgot her character's name. Florence Pugh in the dress smiling at the end. Right. In the Or even the guy in the bear suit. All those things are totally empty. The only they thing look that cool ma- as shit. The but... only thing that makes the Florence Pugh smile matter is how Florence Pugh smiles, and then the hacks of cloak score. It's got nothing to do with anything that Ari Aster's doing. They, no, they have no. They, it has to do with like his technical ability, because he's technically a very solid director. Narratively, he doesn't. I don't think he gives a shit. I think if he tried, he could probably could make it work. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he cares. No, and no one's asking him to care. Because oh, her, everyone thought Tony Collette was going to get nominated for an Oscar for her, Hereditary, and no one even ever heard of him. And that movie's not even very good. She does fine, but she's not Oscar. She just screams a lot. Yeah. But I mean, I remember having that conversation about that movie, and we just assumed that because everyone all everyone just assumed that she was going to get nominated for an Oscar, and this is going to be a really big deal that this horror movie is going to get nominated for Oscars. They didn't get nominated for anything. Because I think. Ultimate, and I think people would point to say it's like a generational gap and like Oscar voters or whatever. But I just feel like ultimately those are very empty. The Ari Aster experience is an empty one, and it's a weird thing. So I compared him a little bit to Alex Ross Perry in terms of getting to stuff. Alex Ross Perry, the thing that I'm getting to is an emotional aesthetic. So when I go get stuff, it has an emotional weight to it that like that reverberates in my brain. I'm not just going to get to the visual experience of watching a movie. And I think that's one of the interesting things. That's the, and that, I think, is the difference between Belfast and Roma. Is that in Roma, I'm going... I didn't love Roma. We had the long conversations about Roma on this podcast. Um, when I go get Roma, it's an emotional experience. When I think about Belfast, and I just watched it, it's pro- trying to process an, process an aesthetic a little bit. Um, but it's like a narrative aesthetic, I think, versus a. I think so. Aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the visual aesthetic is so muddled by this not being. I mean, I guess. So let's end it on here. This is like what we what we've come to expect from Kenneth Branagh. This movie does not hit any of those notes. It hits no. a bunch of different notes, which is good. But it's also total. I have no. It's not rooted in anything. When I think about it, it's not. I'm not attaching it to Kenneth Branagh. No. I'm attaching it to kind of bastardize Alfonso Cuaro. Four hour and 20 minute long North Ireland movie. Right. Um, it's, uh, you know, I think he does, 
I, I, you know, I, I keep talking to Oscars. There's a reason why Jane Campion hasn't moved at all since Power of the Dog came out as the front runner to win Best Director. Even as Belfast is, as everyone's trying to say, like Belfast is the front runner to win Best Picture, Jane Campion's going to win. win Going to win Best Director for the same reason now Alfonso Cuarón won. Eight days won. away from seeing that movie. That's true. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm very excited. Right. Same reason Alfonso Cuarón won Best Director for um, Roma. Roma. It's because it's they're two different things, and one's rewarding art, even though Guillermo del Toro won for Shape of Water, which that is, was just, that was just a weird year. Um. 2017 yeah. was just a year that happened. Man. That shit was rough. That was rough. But anyway. I think I think if 2017 happened this year, I think Greta Gerwig wins the Oscar, right? Well, that, that, was, that was Lady Bird year, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, I hope Greta so. Greta Gerwig wins the Oscar. I think so. Lady Bird, has be- I think, has become like a classic. Like an all-time classic. Like if they rank, it's, be, it's become a Rushmore at the very least. And if they right. go back and give, yeah, that's good. That's if they go good. back and give Wes Anderson an Os- like several Oscars for Rushmore, they would just so they don't have to like give have Wes Anderson one. be doing whatever. He's you know doing. what I feel like Wes Anderson has to. Pro- I don't think Wes Anderson and I didn't see French Dispatch yet. Comes back, it comes out in a couple weeks on <laughs> it's streaming. So bad, but I'm going to watch it's it so because bad. I've watched every Wes Anderson movie. Um, it's. It seems like he's kind of digressed into this, like, living tableau bullshit, and no one's got any use for that shit. Like, that, it was garbage in Grand Budapest Hotel. I didn't really like it in Moonrise Kingdom, although I thought it was appropriate. I think for the same reason that kind of Belfast stuff is appropriate in the sense yeah. that, like, it's a child's view of his of his existence. But it all seemed so staged and gross. Um now that it seems gross in Belfast, it works in Belfast, but no. But I think there's moments, there's 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 moments in the movie where you're just kind of like, that's not right, Kenneth Branagh. Like that's you don't have no. to do that again. And I'm, I'm thinking, oh, the funeral scene when like they shoot from like the grave up, mm. and like, the, and I'm just like, why are you doing that? Like, what is this? What is the purpose? Or even of shooting this? like the room with the body in full shot. It's like, nah. Yeah, like that's cool. I guess he especially especially now we we've had Pop or uh, you know it's Pop right? Yeah, Pop yeah. has like a big figure in this character, and now we're shooting him like dead. It's like oh, I don't want to see. And that. especially when they kind of do this non exposition because also a kid, the whole a kid, movie. kid wouldn't have seen the body as the front and center. The kid would have seen like something small, like the face, not moving. Not necessarily because it's a it's a it's a definitely a culture thing. So like in oh, I guess that's true. in my like when I'm my a wife's Swiss asshole when my Irish. wife's grandfather died, we were all there when they like, they carried and he had been dead for a while. We were all there when they carried like the body out because it was like in the culture for people to spend time in the house with like the body. So my kids didn't go up to sit with him, but they were definitely there when they carried him like out um but my question for that scene was like they've done this non-exposition thing through the whole movie why not just why shoot that like that and not just have them have the conversation that they had which yeah. i thought was a good conversation yeah but which the you ma- would have the, inferred, the conversation absolutely yeah. which you would have inferred from that is that he's dead 
You don't necessarily you need to see even have, him be dead. Have, have like the casket like in in like a little bit of the third. Something. Yeah, like you get your establishing shot of the fact the casket's there, mm-hmm. and you cut to them close. Yeah, and you get the casket in the third. Uh, but I think what we're saying, and we'll we'll end on this, is that it's a it's an it's in an interesting three hour movie. podcast we've had two hours and eighteen minutes, which will be longer because I'm going to put clips in, so it'll be like two and a half hours. That's insane. It's a good one. Well, but these are complicated movies. I think. Yeah. I think we have complicated feelings about them, except for Tick Tick Boom, which we both liked, <laughs> and just, it's just like, good. It's like <laughs> a solid B plus movie. Yeah. It like has its flaws, but it has more. Its flaws are minimal, and its strengths are like like overshadow its flaws, and it feels good. In five years, I'll definitely be watching Tick Tick Boom. I will not be watching King e- Richard or Belfast. Yeah, even if either of those movies are better, they might be, but like, no, they're not. Tick Tick Boom is, I think, a better movie than all of them. How did, how did he do that? Because he loves the thing. I hate Lin Manuel Miranda. He loves Good the job th- guy. He loves the source material, and he had a vision as to what he wanted to do. But I, I never expected him to just be like, "I'll let it speak for itself." I'm good. Good on him. This is me eating crow. He, folks, he is eating a legitimate crow. I'm not sure where he got it from. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's not like he cooked it first. It's, it's a live crow. The crow's like... <laughs> if you want to cancel me for eating crow, <laughs> you can tweet us at Film Pivotal. Or you can email us at pivotalfilmpodcast.gmail.com. If you're Marie Callender's and you want to get a new recipe for Ooh, crow pie. Yeah. Or I mean, you guys haven't been relevant since like 1991. Or the Atkins diet. It's meat. Yeah. It's, it, we're coming in the winter. So, you know, we might slip on ice and crack our heads. That's how Atkins died. Oh, is it? Yeah, he That's slipped sad. on ice and cracked his head. That's sad. Um, is it? He didn't die from like pulmonary embolism. He died from like cracking his head because he was too active. Because his diet was too good. He ate too much meat. Too much beef. Um, it was too catty. Or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and look at the list of the movies on our pivotal film list, which is the thing that we did back in the 80s. Um, or uh, you can yeah, have back, subs- back, back six months ago. It was that's the 80s. Around the time I got told to go fuck myself. It was good, yeah. <laughs> what? This podcast, this is the best episode we've ever done. Um, or you can see how to subscribe to our podcast or like see how you get to our Twitter page, um, which we haven't updated in a while. We haven't updated anything in a while. Um, but we're doing it regular now, I think, because all the movies yeah. are coming out. All the movies are coming yeah, out. Yeah, I'm excited. I, I, was, I was thinking about this today. I was like, I was like, oh, man, pretty soon I'll get, pretty soon we get to spend a little money to get that, uh, to get that guy back from the streets mm. to do... We're gonna have to the come voice. up with a cutoff date, Mario. Oh, it's it's December thirty first. I mean, no, it's got to be January fourteenth. Oh, it's got to be yeah, because that's when fourteenth. Yeah, Macbeth comes out on Apple TV. No, I realized too, the ghosts are gone. I thought about this today. What happened to the what happened to the ghost of the pivotal film towers? They got COVID and died. Wow, <laughs> it cost me an extra seven hundred dollars a month, but I guess it was worth it. Seven hundred dollars? Oh yeah, that's right. Did it go up? No, no. At least you have it's your air same, conditioning is fixed. It's called it's the, seasons. No, yeah, it's just the seasons. Um yeah, go uh watch. Or you me. do not hear 
but you know we can't get rid of the motorcycles and now we have train sounds i don't know what that was today mario <laughs> there's a very strange sound there were, there outside the no podcast studio. yeah no i don't know what that was um yeah watch movies a lot of movies coming out um good bad you know whatever we'll talk about them drink beers drink apparently beers. after not drinking beers don't drink nine percent beers Whew. That or was... else this this episode happens. No, this is a good one. It's a good one, but like, this is what happens. Unless someone emails us, that's like, listen, I've been staying away from emailing you for a long time, but I have to step in. It was awful. Yeah, the second the second Mario said he wanted to bang Jamie Dorn, <laughs> I was done. No, that's not the point. There's gonna be everyone listening to me. Like, <laughs> Drink beers. Watch movies. Watch movies. Watch movies. Watch movies. Watch movies.